Guitar Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. And thank you so much for listening. We've now recorded over 25 episodes with some of the best guitarists in the world, and we don't plan on slowing down. We're so stoked that you're enjoying the topics we are covering. Please share us with your friends and give us a tag. You can find me on Instagram at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S and A.R. Levy. And that's at A.R. Levy U-R-M Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. If you want to give us a review, then we especially love iTunes reviews. We will never charge you for this podcast. All we ask is that you give us a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on with it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Mr. Angel Vivaldi, who is a Jersey-born guitar player, songwriter, and producer. He's got a bunch of albums, EPs, clinics, and charity work under his belt. And it's no surprise that Angel was voted the third best guitarist by Progsphere and is widely considered to be a virtuoso-tier talent within guitar circles. I present you Angel Vivaldi. Angel Vivaldi, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Greetings. Someone wants to call me right as you greet me into this podcast. Hello. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no big deal. Hey, Angel. How are you? I'm fantastic, man. How are you guys? Yeah. Yeah, pretty good, actually. Nothing to complain about. I've started uh, drinking cordyceps in my coffee. What's that? That sounds dangerous. So they put it in, well, in China, they look like these little bugs. And that's what they are. It's a type of fungus that grows out of the head of animals and they use it for anti-inflammatory. Uh-huh. Along with the coffee, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that makes you inflamed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is crazy. And how do you know this actually works? Because I've not been angry for three days. Oh, uh, I thought he was going to say, like, he just looks back at his toilet and see what the, you know, what came out of him. <laughs> <laughs> what color, what consistency, at which rate. <laughs> so inflammation makes you angry? No, it's just that I feel like I've got more energy, basically, because it's also mix, mixed with ginseng as well. So uh, We yeah. love that. It's actually a, a company called London Nootropics, and they make coffee with different things in it. It's with pretty different expensive. Bugs. Different yeah, different, bugs, different bugs, different fungus. Yeah, you know, all that sort of Ooh, stuff. It's expensive, man. He's bougie. I love this. We're off to a great start. Let's spend some money. <laughs> bougie. I love that word. On some substances. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> Yeah, like, so I want to know how you know that it works. Well, I don't, do I? It's all, everything's a placebo, right? Mm-hmm. But I feel better, even though it tastes absolutely awful. Yeah, man. Well, results are as good as anything, right? Feel good. Exactly. Feel better after three days. So it's like, oh, well, feeling positive. So nothing to complain about, basically. Yeah, how are you, AL? I'm good. I haven't been eating any insects lately, though. Ah, you that should we try know it of. time. It's good for you. Yeah, you're probably eating a few spiders in your sleep. Probably. Would you eat an insect, like, uh, if it was served to you as, like, a delicacy? Dude, I went to China. Yeah, say no more. (laughs) It's partly probably the reason I turned vegetarian. (laughs) What about you, Angel? Fuck no, man. No, 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 no. The closest thing that I've had is escargot, and that's where where I draw the line right there. It was actually pretty good, surprisingly. I enjoyed it. I went to this really fancy Mexican restaurant once in Mexico. The people I was with, I was with my then girlfriend and another couple. The other couple was trying to show us like what high-end Mexican dining is all about. And they ordered 
as one of the courses, these ant tacos. It was just like a bunch of black ants in like a bowl that you scoop out <laughs> and you put in a tortilla. Yum. <laughs> and they were like, it's great. <laughs> Allow me to cleanse my palate as I hear the story. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't do it. My then girlfriend did though, and she said it wasn't so bad. Was she Mexican? Nope. Since she was just brave. She was just brave. <laughs> Good for her. Yeah. Yeah, she was just brave. Humans are quite weird, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they can be. Getting a bunch of ants and putting it in a tortilla. <laughs> hey, desperate times, man. <laughs> yeah. So you you're saying you wouldn't do that? Not knowingly. But you know, it's one of those things again, you tell me not, you know, what it isn't. And I just eat it because I'm open-minded like that. I'll try it, you know. But if you tell me what it is, mm-mm, that ain't that ain't living, man. <laughs> <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. I mean, I think that that's probably one of the best uh, philosophies to adopt when eating on the road, for sure. Yeah, definitely. I don't miss the road. I'll tell you that much, man. No? I'm very much a homebody. I'm very much in my element here, you know. Did a lot of touring, man. Unintentionally, it just kind of like sucked me in. How do you do unintentional touring? How does that work? Well, I feel like there's this thing of paying your dues, right? But even when you're out there kind of paying your dues, it's like the way you go about doing that, you know, it's like there's like sub levels of doing, you know, paying your dues in different areas of your career, you know, whether it's like online or, you know, uh, on, you know, on tour, playing with certain people as far as like, you know, being a hired gun, like you pay your dues in different ways. And um, yeah, man, I did like, I did a, it was like three years of touring every three months, which was pretty fucking brutal, you know? But yeah, my last tour was in like 2018. No one's touring now, so <laughs> I don't have fans <laughs> nagging me like, come to Brazil, you know? So it's nice. <laughs> we went to Brazil and no one in Brazil showed up. See, there you go. They asked for it and then it's just like, where are the people? <laughs> there are no people. <laughs> so by the time you were done with it in 2018, were you like over it? Yeah, you know what? Um, now I think I have a little bit more insight on my happy medium. You know, I realized that, no, you don't have to fucking pay dues. Like you don't have to go on tour to pay dues. You know, like the thing that I'm worried about is paying my bills and living a certain way. Right. I don't not like I've never thanked by the grace of God, I've never had to financially tour. There's no financial need to tour, you know? Um, and I'm very, very grateful for that. I don't take that for granted for a second because, you know, a lot of my friends are really hurting right now. I mean, like this, the devastating stories that I've heard over the past 10 months have just like, just fucking, it breaks your heart, man. It really breaks your heart. So, you know, luckily I'm in a position where there's no financial need to tour. I do it because I love to perform. You know, I love to perform. And there's two things that I love doing on tour, man. I love to perform and I love hanging out with the fans afterward, right up until the doors close, man. That's like, that's what makes me feel most alive. But dude, that 20 hours outside of that, fuck that, dude. Fuck that. Like I'm 35, you know, I thought like, I even thought originally like, oh, once I have a full bus, I'll be fine. Bitch, no, you're not. It doesn't change that much, honestly. It doesn't. It doesn't. And you, you don't realize it until you're in that situation, you know, but you have to, like anything else, man, people, you can hear all the stories in the world, but you need to experience it for yourself. And just to see if, you know, you have the full capacity, you know, it's tough. It's a very tough lifestyle. I think it would change the lifestyle when it gets to like the top level, you know, when you've got your own roadies, you've got your own techs and you can wake up in the morning and go and do your own thing for the whole day. 
and then play the show. I think that that would probably be the changer. Yeah, but you're still traveling. Yeah, you're still not home. Your creature comforts. And no amount of money can get the human body accustomed to the jarring nature of constant travel. So the only, I mean, yeah, so you're in nicer beds, nicer vehicles and all that, but you're still moving through time zones. You're still going to not get as much sleep as you need. You're still not going to have the most ideal, like nutritional situations. You're still going to be subject to like whatever nastiness there is out there. Like, like COVID. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might be at the four seasons, but you're still checking out at four in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good point. Yeah. Like, obviously, it's probably better to tour in Slipknot than it is in, uh, you know, my band was, but I'm sure that it's still hard. I guarantee you it's still hard. Yeah, especially when you have a family and kids at home, man. Like that's, that's even rougher, dude. That's very rough. I mean, like, listen, I'm single. <laughs> I don't have kids, but I miss my house. I miss my routine. You know, I miss my gym. I miss my coach. I miss my food, especially now. Like that, that's a, become a huge part of my life very unintentionally, but it's like going out on the road, kiss that shit goodbye, dude. That, that life is good luck. You think you're going to wake up and go to the gym? Okay. <laughs> Wait, so would you consider yourself a routine oriented person or not? Yes. Very. Like pre COVID. Yes. Cause you just said unintentionally. Well, on the road, uh, yeah, because okay. there's so many factors. There's press, you know, you have interviews to do. You have all these little monkey wrenches that life throws at you that you have no control. You have very little to no control over, you know. It really is a matter of the adapting game, adapt quick, you know. All right, so the sound, you know, five-hour sound chase because there's like a humming that is like very invasive to the show. All right, well, we got to figure that out, you know, and, and it takes a lot longer. So you can't go and get that sandwich that you had scheduled on TripAdvisor that you really wanted to go to in Portland, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> it's just how it is, man. You get married to anything on tour, be in for a rough divorce, be in for a rough yep. divorce because bitch, it ain't going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Would you attribute the level of proficiency or accomplishment that you've reached on guitar? Do you attribute that to being a routine type of person? Also with fitness? Yeah, I, I would attribute the fitness to routine. Absolutely. The guitar, it was a different time in my life. I think we can all say that, you know, it's like in our teens when we're just fucking hungry and passionate and that tunnel vision, like no matter what, you're going to make this happen for yourself to the best of your ability, you know? And I think a lot of that is... Um, investing the time to meet the universe halfway with a lot of hard work, you know, so the universe will give you X, Y, and Z, you know, it'll give you health. It'll give you, you know, living in a certain country that has, you know, it's not a third world country, right? We have beautiful riches in, in comparison to that. Some of us are blessed with very supportive families, you know, and friends. So my concoction was just like, do or die, I'm making this happen, you know? And I think uh, another reason why, I think it's it's an escape for a lot of us too, you know, who are going through rough times during our formative years. Um, and that's kind of like, for me, that was my anchor, man. That was my anchor because I went through some shit, <laughs> you know? So it was it was that escape. And knowing, even at a young age, man, I, I kind of realized what a privilege it was to know what, it, what I'm here to do, you know? Um, it's gotta be fucking scary, you know, working a job every day and not knowing, not having a passion, not having a hobby, you know, like, so that's something I really never took for granted. And I wanted to honor that, you know, and make sure that 
I made whatever sacrifices I had to make to, you know, make it happen for myself. That's one thing that I just expanding on the hobby part of that now. That's one thing I don't get when people say they don't have a hobby. Mm-hmm. I don't have a hobby. Yeah, you do. You used to play guitar. You had a hobby. <laughs> you that had a hobby. A hobby. <laughs> it was not a hobby, dude. Dude. Yes, it was. Like it started off as a hobby. Come on. No, it Everyone, didn't. What, what, did it, no. what did it start on it for you It started then? off as a mission in life. And the reason that I stopped was because the mission was accomplished. From the moment I picked it up till the moment I put it down, it was the mission, 100%. Like, I've never had hobbies. Weird. Like, yeah, I can't. I can't. The reason I stopped with guitar was because I no longer had that the fire to go as far as I possibly could with it. And I can't do things halfway. Like, I can't. So, actually, I don't know what it's like to have a hobby. Do you just put a spanner in my works? <laughs> no, it's okay. We're all different. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. It's all individual, dude. Like, it's just that for me, when I picked up the guitar, I knew it was what I wanted to do. Do you know what I mean? But at the same time, it was a hobby until point where it wasn't. Like, it wasn't the main thing. You know, like, when you're a kid, yeah, you can focus 100% of it. Then the moment you turn 18, there's bills and stuff that get involved and stuff like that. So that, at that point, I'd still consider it a hobby until you've shifted it. Well, I mean, think of it this way, too. I describe, you know, uh, when we have careers, especially nowadays, man, anyone who has a career in music, you don't only have a career in music. You know, it's multifaceted. So I, for, for myself, I, I kind of compare it to like a, a, a tree, right? So like the thickest, the, the trunk of that tree is my music career. And through my music career, I was like I've branched out to do all these different things, you know? So like those would would be considered passionate hobbies of mine, like videography, fashion, aesthetic, branding, marketing. Those I would consider in comparison to music, you know, genuine interests and and passions, Um, whether, you know, you classify passions as as hobbies. And just luckily for me, these are all things I've, I've been able to integrate one way or another, either conceptually, artistically or anything like that back into my music. So it's just kind of like this cycle of, you know, feeding and providing inspiration to like, you know, funneling back into my career, then back out and, you know, I've been very lucky in that respect. So yeah, I mean, kids nowadays, they're videographers now, you know, <laughs> they're graphic yeah. designers. You got to do it yourself, right? Unless you had the money to hire someone else and you got to do it all. You should still do it yourself. So I consider the way I see a hobby is something that you're interested in, but not interested in going all the way with. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. So say videography, you're interested in it. Correct. Are you interested in becoming Chris Nolan? Oh, hell no. Okay. But you are interested in it, so you'll get to a certain level with it. But it's not like music that was like the defining the defining force. Correct, right, exactly. Brown, I don't think you were ever a hobbyist with music. You just weren't making money at some point. Yeah, maybe, I guess so, yeah. I guess it's more just the perception on how we have those words, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like, I guess that's what it is. So, what? yeah, when I think of like musician hobbyists, I think of either dudes dudettes who do it out of pure enjoyment and have no professional aspirations whatsoever. They just do it because they love it, which is fine. That's cool. That to me is a hobby. Or people who uh, have another career and are delusional about their musical aspirations. (laughs) Uh, So they act as if it's a hobby. In real life, they give it hobby kind of time and hobby kind of energy and hobby kind of commitment but they say that it's really their passion or whatever. So those to me are hobbyists too. Yeah. Like a C minus effort with a facade of 
A. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Your efforts have to match your ambitions. So right. if you're not professional yet, but your efforts are matching your ambitions, like you want to do it for real. It's what you want to do, but you're not at that level yet to only do it. I don't consider that a hobbyist. I consider that serious. You're just not professional yet. I understand. Amateur. Okay. That would be the word. Amateur. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Semi-pro. Semi-pro amateur, but not hobbyist. It's two different things. Mm-hmm. I guess so, yeah. Okay, right, yeah. You Americans, that's what, that's what I'll put it down to, just difference <laughs> of words. <laughs> Breaking shit apart, man. Fucking Americans. <laughs> yeah, man. People have been saying that for a long time. Yeah, and now they really mean it, don't they? <laughs> oh, man, they meant it before, too. It's like... They meant it at like a B minus. Now they mean it on like an A plus. Like they're really. <laughs> I don't know, man. When I went on my first Euro tour in uh-huh. 2003 or four, we were driving through Paris and we were getting like bottles thrown at our vehicle. and Like people were like heckling us and Americans go home. And like it was, it actually got kind of scary. Our vehicle started getting rocked by a crowd. It was some scary shit. Was it because you guys were American or maybe you were just having an off night maybe? I've had them. It's okay. You can say it. No, no. It's because we were Americans. <laughs> it was before we played. It was because of the because of the Iraq War. Ah. Uh, yeah, which we had, obviously, we had nothing to do with. Misplaced anger. Yes. We were there to play some black metal. <laughs> what the hell did we have to do with the Iraq War? I guess what I'm saying is when people say fuck Americans, this is, they've been saying it and meaning it for quite a while. I don't think it's a new sentiment or anything. I want to say something here. I did not say fuck Americans. <laughs> <laughs> Just minor details. I know you did. <laughs> my my, uh, my granddad is American with it. for what it's worth. Canceled. John Brown is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about misplaced anger, dude. Holy shit. I know, isn't it? Nah, like that cordyceps isn't working anymore. Now I'm angry. <laughs> Why? Why are you so mad at me, dude? Because I'm American? Nah, not oh, too. God. Nah. You know, on the subject of misplaced anger, let's talk about something here. Sure. So let's talk about Mr. Eddie Van Halen. So Mr. Eddie Van Halen, man. So that was fucked up. Yeah. As if we needed any more for this year. You know, and on social media, like I, I haven't honestly posted in like fucking like a month and a half at this point, really. Um, Because I just don't, I just don't care. You know, I don't live my life online, dude. So... I made a post, obviously, because he was like the fucking, like the guitar god, the OG, you know, and in my post, um, but when it came to, I guess, a generational thing, like his music really never moved me, but I mean, dude, all fucking due respect where it's due, right? And I made a post, I said um, something along the lines of, you know, rest in peace, the OG shred god, Eddie Van Halen. Granted, his music didn't move me, but no Eddie Van Halen, no Vi, no Ingve. None of them, right? And holy shit. Like most of the comments are extremely supportive and they understood what I was saying, but man, misplaced anger. Why are you talking shit? Misplaced mm-hmm. anger. Because my whole thing is this, and I said this a number of years ago in a little bit of an online rant, is like, you know, when people judge bands and they say, oh, this band sucks or this artist sucks, you know? My take on how to express that, you know, you don't like an artist is just to say their music doesn't move me, right? That's, I feel, is the most mature way to say it, yeah. like, you know, it just doesn't yeah, move it's not, me. It's not for me. It's not for me, right? Yeah, no big and deal. And I can't be the only person in the world who Eddie Van Halen didn't move. Right here. Here's another one. Yeah, you know, I mean, respect. Like, I 100% appreciate and respect and acknowledge his impact. Mm-hmm. How can you not? 
it's like like Jimi Hendrix too, Absolutely. kind of thing. Like I'm not a Jimi Hendrix fan, never was, but like if I were to try and deny his role in all of our lives, that would just be stupid and feel the same way about Van Halen. I mean, it would just be historically stupid to try to deny Absolutely. what a massive, massive institution that guy was on so many levels. So, And so what if like, to my personal taste, the music didn't hit home emotionally? Right. Who gives a fuck? Right. He was still great. Absolutely. And, you know, yeah. and, it's, and it's, it's completely foolish to think that any artist in the world is universally liked. Even an icon like There's him. There's no such thing. There's no such thing, you know. And, and keep in mind, too, you know, we have a an, an entire new generation of guitarists who have never heard him play. Truly, you know. There's kids who have never heard him play. They're not of that generation, man. Like, my generation's idols were Satriani, Vi, Ingve. You know, that was my generation's of guitar legends. And I guess my, my intention was really just a matter of like, t just to be able to relate to the people who are out there and inevitably ignorant and saying, oh yeah, whatever, he died, da, 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 and being ignorant about it because you know they exist. Just to give a little perspective from someone who wasn't necessarily moved, but can put that aside to just pay respects to someone who fucking earned it, you know? But oh my God, dude, those some of those comments, whew. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that like the way that you said it, their music didn't move me. But I always come to the conclusion as well when there's something that I don't like. I always just say that I'm not ready for it. Yeah, there you go. Because there's definitely been times when I've listened to a piece of music and I've not liked it. And then I come back to it a couple of years later and it's like, huh, why didn't I like this? This is actually pretty rad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it works vice versa too. You listen yeah. to shit you used to listen to back in the day, but like, what the fuck? Yeah. Who laced yeah. my drink, you know? However, the Eddie Van Halen comments from YouTube, sorry. I just think he's fucking incredible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the, for me, you see, I grew up really early on. And one of my earliest memories is listening to Michael Jackson. Ah, uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. most, uh, you know, Beat It was actually my favorite song as a kid. And I didn't even know what an electric guitar was at that point. But when I hear that guitar solo, man, it makes the, 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 the hairs on the back of my spine go. Rightfully so. That guitar solo is just phenomenal. Yeah. I didn't realize till years after that it was actually Eddie. Because like Michael Jackson was my number one end all be all. Yeah. Honestly, even to this day. And I didn't even know till like way into playing guitar. I was like, that's that's Eddie? Oh, okay. Because I thought it was Jennifer Batten. Because that's, that's the image that I had back in that era was just Jennifer Batten. So yeah, that was, that was interesting to realize that. What a stunning guitar player. What a great song. I love that song. I'm going to listen to it after we finish uh, doing this. <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, the thing about saying you're not ready for something, maybe you just don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's okay too. Yeah. I'm just polite, man. Fair enough. My opinion is worth nothing. I'm one in seven billion. Yeah. So, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> yes. I don't think there's anything wrong with not personally liking something. Yeah. yeah I guess it's the approach. Yeah. It yeah. is the approach. You know, yeah. it's one thing to be belligerent about your opinions. And, um, you know, I, I very much, I, I, I always try to, especially when it comes to like, you know, voicing my, cause I'm a very opinionated motherfucker, but even with that, <laughs> you know, I mean, if you've seen any of my Instagram stories, Jesus Christ, but it's a matter of tact, you know, it's like, I'm savage. Yes. But it's sometimes also a matter of tact, especially when it comes around to something that's sensitive, you know, about like a guitar legends passing, like, come on. <laughs> you know? There, there's also something that the internet 
is not very good with, which is nuance. So what you posted about him was nuanced because you have to understand nuance to be able to understand that somebody can feel multiple ways about something. Even if you think that something is the most amazing thing that ever happened on earth, somebody else might have a multi-layered opinion on it. And the internet, first of all, I think most people don't read on the internet. They, they don't read past a certain point. Like there seems to be a point where their brain shuts off. So probably where you said, you know, while his music didn't move me, that's, that's it. They didn't read anything. Done. They're absolutely right. They kind of, in their mind, they wrote the rest of your, of your post for you. Like you, they probably thought you said, and he didn't move me. He sucked. And fuck that guy. Yep. The worst. (laughs) Fuck that guy. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right, man. You're absolutely right. I'm serious. I really think that people, they don't read past the first, past the headline or past the first couple sentences or something. And then they superimpose what they think that person is going to say. There's a technical term for this, actually. It's called skimming. It's called skimming. 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 Yeah, I Mm -hmm. learned it in school. It's where you read sentences faster. But doesn't skimming, isn't that like a technique for speed reading where you're actually supposed to take the info in? Yeah. I would call this super imposing. I think with skimming, you're trying to get to the end quicker, but you're still like picking up the important bits and pieces and trying to understand what's written. I think in this case, they're not trying to understand what's written. They're just seeing something at the beginning of a, of a statement and assuming that they know whatever else is there and just reacting. Correct. And then you throw a bunch of people who are genuinely heartbroken and upset and angry. That's a bad recipe. Yeah. And then they read those comments and then react to those comments as if those people read the original comment correctly and just becomes a cesspool of shit. Right. Self-perpetuating toilet. I just don't give a fuck. (laughs) I know. It's like a toilet that's getting shat in on an infinite loop. (laughs) From someone who eats bugs with their coffee. (laughs) Basically. Just Boris Boris, basically. If you want to create one of those, just create an Axe Effects versus Kemper post. (laughs) (laughs) Mac versus PC. That's a good one too. Yeah, that 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 one I'm seeing a lot more of. That that I feel like the people are just bored of the previous argument and it's that or like those stupid fucking boutique picks that cost like thirty dollars, you know, which is evidence that the guitar (laughs) community is just fucking bored. They need hobbies. They need hobbies outside of guitar, bro. Like, go on a date, clean your house, do something, get laid, fucking watch a documentary, read a book. Anything other than invest in a $30 pick? (laughs) Come on, dude. Like, or just like, or to fight about a $30 pick. Like, I got got an idea. Learn to play. God God forbid. That's crazy. That's crazy, dude. What are you talking about? Spend some time. (laughs) So we see this a lot in uh, the recording communities. Uh, People will spend a long time posting about really nice analog gear, arguing for it, talking about it. And then it turns out that most of these people have never even used it ever. (laughs) They've never even seen it in real life. And they're (laughs) arguing about it as though they know what difference it makes or doesn't make. You, You see this a lot. I think 
It's very, very similar to people who spend way longer looking up uh, differences between Axe Effects models rather than getting better at playing in time. Yeah. The same sort of delusional approach <laughs> to, to music. Pretty much. It runs a beautiful parallel. Yeah. It, it probably happens beyond what we're into as well. Like I'm sure it does. Probably with fishing poles and fishing and something like that. <laughs> I'm seeing it in the fitness community um, now that I've been like more into that. It's even worse, actually. Oh, let's talk. Sure, let's talk. <laughs> let's talk. The, the fitness community is even worse than the music community with this shit. Yep. It's about supplements, what your split is, which split is better. Holy shit. Everybody thinks they know. Yeah, of course. Without taking any consideration into the actual individual and what works for the individual, it has to be a blanket fucking answer for everyone. And let me tell you, so... In 2016, I'm, I'm sorry, actually a little bit further back, maybe 2014, I did this uh, genetic fitness test where you send your your uh, your DNA to this company. And it's kind of like the movie The Island, if you remember that with, uh, I think it's Ewan McGregor. Yeah. Where, you know, based on your body and your genetics, they have these traits that are right for you, what foods you need to eat, what type of hit training, whatever type of training in general is going to work for you, how your slow and fast mu muscle fibers, like how, how they react with certain types of hypertrophy. And it was incredibly insightful. I, I, I advise anyone who's into fitness, check this out. It's incredibly insightful. It's called fitness genes. Since then, it's expanded way beyond fitness. So it goes deep into stuff like how you detoxify uh, carbon emissions in the air, how you metabolize vitamin C, D, E. Like there's probably at this point, shit, probably close to a hundred different traits because they just set up these traits and they run everyone's, you know, genetic information through them. And it comes back with these incredible results. And that was the first thing I think that kind of inspired me. I was like, holy shit, I have something actually catered to me. And my God, it's fucking working. Incredible. So anyone out there into that, that kind of stuff, I definitely check, you know, suggest you guys check it out. Wouldn't you rather just go online and tell a bunch of people they're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, I got things to do. <laughs> yeah. That's quite insightful, actually. Yeah, it makes sense as well. A lot of sense. Yeah. Everyone's built differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. Saved me a lot of time. <laughs> yeah, that's why you should never listen to anybody online about this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Including myself. Just do whatever the fuck you want. <laughs> I think everyone needs to figure out what works for them. That's the most important thing. People are always hitting me up about, like, they want specifics of, like, uh, how I ate to transform myself, like, just down to the detail. And it's like, dude. I hate those questions, man. Do you have tabs? It's the equivalent. You're not going to actually do any of what I'm telling you to do anyways. <laughs> and uh, you already know what to do. Yeah. Because there's no, uh, there's no magic to any of it. You already know what to do. You're just asking so that maybe I validate you. Mm -hmm. And you feel a little better about yourself. Oh, I did some research. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> You know, it got to the point where it literally is exactly like asking for fucking tabs. I'm like, yo, go on fucking YouTube, learn your, learn your shit. And even when friends would ask me, it still annoys the shit out of me. So I made a keyboard shortcut. What are you eating? MCC, here are my macros. And it has a whole fucking paragraph. Don't bother me. <laughs> Do what works for you, man. Like I got a fantastic trainer. You know, I train with him four times a week. 
up until fucking COVID, I was planning to do a bodybuilding competition in April. Nice. And then obviously that went to shit. And, and yeah, man, and, and, and even that's a journey. You have to just try, trial and error, man. Try different things. See if it works for you. You know, like even with the trainer, you know, I went to like three different guys until I found one that understood. I can, I knew that he knew his shit. You know, he stays up to date with, you know, the literature and, and all the new, you know, studies that are being done. And I, I felt confident and I stuck with him and I've been with him uh, since March of 2019. Quite happy, you know. I think it's very, very similar to uh, to music um, in that when it comes down to it, there's no, uh, there's really no shortcuts with anything. You need to do the work. Asking people too many questions is counterproductive. At the end of the day, it's a solo mission to figure it out. You can get like a coach or you can get a guitar teacher or mentor, whatever. And those are helpful. But at the end of the day, it's you alone doing the work, figuring out what works best for you and being super, 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 super committed to an outcome that you'll do anything to reach. It's really, really similar. Yeah. You can lay the path out for someone, but they, you can't walk it for them. Correct. Even in that case, if you lay the path out for them... You're giving them an easy route. <laughs> it's not nearly as effective as uh, just helping teach them how to illuminate their own path, in my opinion. Yeah, true. They're way more likely to walk down a path if they're if they figure it out themselves. Yeah. Especially with the diet, man. Like that was the biggest revolution for me, really. Well, revelation rather, which is realizing how crucial that was, man. You know, and no one ain't going to cook your food for you, you know? Like no one's <laughs> going to feed you. No one's going to tell you, oh, it's time to eat. No one's coming to help. I'll tell you what, actually, it's quite interesting how the human body tells you when you've eaten something it doesn't like. Oh, yeah. When you pay attention. Anyway, I don't know if you've had that AL as well. Uh, Yeah. <laughs> you mean like vomiting? Oh, you had that. It went that far for you. Okay, cool. I mean, I'm just saying, I mean, I'm just going off of what you said, how the human body tells you you ate something you shouldn't have eaten. Uh, or even if you feel like shit. Yeah, it yeah. makes you feel yeah, like you feel shit or lethargic or something like that. Like, I mean, a lot of us just don't pay attention to it. We're just trying to, you know, wash it down with some painkillers or something like that. But we are what we eat at the end of the day. And like, as I say, I was drinking the cordyceps, which is, I know coffee's bad for me, but I enjoy having a coffee in the morning. So now you're an insect. Yeah. Now I'm an insect, of course. <laughs> yeah. No, but I've also cut some other things out my diet over the past few weeks. I cut out wheat again. Um, I stopped eating meat from March because of the way it made me feel. And I think the body tells us a lot more. We just don't pay attention to it. Yeah. Agreed. So what are you eating? Lots of vegetables, lots of vegetables, drinking loads of water, gluten-free stuff occasionally like for cereal, because uh, I'm trying to cut wheat out, and changed any pasta to buckwheat, which is very minimal in wheat, basically. Then how's it making you feel? Not hungry. It's good. <laughs> Are you noticing like a, a profound difference? Yes. Good. I'm glad to hear that. Well, because I've only been doing the couple of extra things for the last couple of weeks. Obviously, it takes longer than a few weeks. And that's what you were saying about commitment. You just have to deal with it. Um, and after you get used to it, it doesn't seem as bad anymore. Well, I made a pretty huge dietary change in August that I felt the ramifications of immediately. So um, between January and August, I tried to build muscle off of vegan protein. Like I tried all of the different plant-based proteins. I tried. I really, really tried. Gram per pound of body weight, all that stuff. And I was getting results. But August, I was like, let's see what happens if I just switch to whey mainly way. Boom. 
so fast, <laughs> so fast within like three days, it just started growing. It was not a subtle change. It wasn't like took weeks to kick in or anything like that. It was just like, boom, this is what your body needs. Now, I'm not saying that that's true for everybody or anything like that, but uh, just saying that when you switch to something that actually works for you, in my experience, it's not subtle and it's not slow. It's uh, your body thanks you for it. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So fuck beet protein. <laughs> Dude, it's fucking disgusting. It is dry. Oh God, it's gross too. It's yeah. like chalk water, man. It's so bad. You can get used to anything though. Yeah. That's a rough thing to get used to though. But hey, some people. <laughs> when I say I tried, I tried, man. January through August. That's a long time. Yeah. Like I actually tried and I got used to the taste. It, at first it was so rough, but I got used to it. Like I really, really wanted it to work, but it just didn't. What can I say? I've actually been uh, trying something that has pea protein in it, actually. Huel. Have you guys heard of that? I have heard of it. Mm-mm. Yeah, I think it's pea protein. And every single time I go to drink it, um, it just tastes like I'm drinking a cardboard box. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds a little bit like that Soylent product. Yeah. The Soylent tasted, tasted like a cardboard box. <laughs> what are your macros, dude? I'm just kidding. Yeah, it's, oh, it's pea protein. That's what it is. All right. Way you say? Yeah, there's a certain consistency with that's very consistent in anything that has a pea protein in it. It's just like this. Yeah, it's just like wet cardboard, man. Throw it in the blender, throw some oats in there, a little bit of peanut butter, and <laughs> you got yourself a pretty rough uh, shake to have it down. <laughs> yeah, you got a cardboard peanut butter shake. Well, yeah, I mean, peanut butter is rough in itself. But I mean, can you do dairy? <laughs> no, I had to eat. Uh, my body doesn't like dairy. Then don't do whey. It's not for you. All right. Okay, then. Cool. Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be visiting the toilet every five seconds then, yeah? Then don't do it. Yeah, that'll be rough. I'll find something that works for me. Yeah. I mean, dude, if the pea protein works for you, cool. It doesn't. To say, you probably have very different goals <laughs> than me too, So, or than Angel. Yeah, exactly. You got to do whatever suits your goals and your individual constitution, I think. Which is just being skinny for me. Oh, that one's easy. Just don't eat. Go on tour, man. You say that, but it's all bread and cheese. Meth, Meth, that sounds better. (laughs) There are some very simple (laughs) solutions to being skinny. (laughs) Meth, that's the first one. (laughs) Uh, What? Thanks for the insight, Al. You're welcome. I'm glad I've got you to rely on, mate. I'm here to help. Crack, that one works too. (laughs) During COVID, it's probably a little bit more difficult to get a hold of. Yeah, but you can make meth in a bathtub. <laughs> so, yeah. I've watched Breaking Bad. That. I've got it all down. Oh well, I've got that's it all down. like the good kind. Like you can make uh, you can make meth with like a bunch <laughs> of household products. Apparently, <laughs> I think I'll avoid. But thank you. Hey man, so uh, I heard about this one. I heard about this uh, really horrible bodybuilder drug called DNP. That's a fat burner mm. that literally cooks you from the inside. Some idiots take it because. Uh, because you can lose up to 3.5 pounds of fat per week without changing anything, like eating cheesecake, eating in a caloric surplus, 3.5 pounds a week on average. However, the, 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 uh, the problem is that it could just kill you. So there's no tolerance developed for it. So you could take it for like a week and be fine, take the same doses the next day, and then just get cooked alive. And literally what it does is it raises your body temperature 
sometimes two degrees, but sometimes up to 10 degrees. And there's no, there's no way to know. So you could just take it and be fine, or you could just take it and literally get roasted from the inside and melt. And so uh, it's super, super dangerous, but there's always DNP. Always try that. I'm just reading about it now. It sounds pass. perfect. Dude, it sounds horrific. <laughs> It sounds fucking horrific. Jesus. I'm guessing that you can't buy it anymore. I don't know where you could buy it. I I read about it and I was like, you know, this sounds worse than just starving. (laughs) Like, like if you're going to put yourself through this, why don't you just starve? You'll lose weight even faster and you're not going to get cooked alive. It's also going to suck. They still sell it. That's really bad, isn't it? Do they? Yeah. Don't do it. (laughs) Have you ever heard of it before, Angel? No, never. I've heard of... A lot of the, you know, the fucking anabolics, because a lot of the guys in my gym is like one of those gyms where there's fucking meatheads everywhere. But uh, no, that that's a new one. That's a new one. Oof. And the pre's too. It's funny. There's a lot of companies. So I don't know how it is in the UK, uh, John, but... Uh, well, it's. Um, I'm just looking now. It's actually classified as an explosive in the United Kingdom. <laughs> okay. See, that's the reason why I ask about the region, because in the States, so... I'm not going to name the company, but I know some people who run, uh, they do, you know, supplements and there's a year before the FDA, you know, cause they, they're getting, you know, hit with all sorts of, especially now with all these fitness people online and stuff like that. The first thing that they do is like, they start, you know, a supplement company if they don't do a clothing line <laughs> and what they were doing is, uh, so they put out this, they, they would put out a pre-workout knowing that they have one year to sell it, right? Before the FDA gets a hold of it to, you know, analyze it. And uh, <laughs> twice already, they've released these pre-workouts that are fucking, re- dude, it just turns you into a fucking beast. And I, I all my pre's are like, you know, I do the superfood, you know, disgusting green vibrance kind of stuff. Um, so I don't really use a lot of the stimulants, but dude, like the stimulants will make you want to... The stuff that's not going to kill you? Yeah, man. Like you, I even stay away from like BCAAs, honestly. It's like, it makes like you jump off a fucking cliff, man. Like you, you would want to pave the highways like that level. And, um, they do extremely well because man, they work. Like I see these guys and they're like, yeah, man, have you tried da, 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 da? Nah, man, I'm good. You know, <laughs> like sweating and they just look disheveled. I mean, it'll make you move some weight. It'll make you move some weight, but yeah. And then, you know, once the FDA gets a hold of it, they shut it down. They just start another one. <laughs> Look at that one. <laughs> so basically they're putting out these products with banned substances in them and serious adult drugs. And then a year later, they, you know, they get shut down. So they just rebrand and put out a pre with adult drugs in them. Yeah, it's a combination of a couple things. It's uh, it's not necessarily banned substances. It's also it's mostly the amount of the substances that they put in there, okay. along with the conjunction of other things that should not go together. Yeah, that's where you know because like a banned substance is a banned substance in the state. Like like they could shut down the company itself, but in these cases, it's more of the chemistry aspect and the amount of it, so that they can you know still bounce back and continue on with what they're doing, but in just a slightly different tweaked little chemistry kind of thing. Like 600 milligrams of caffeine with like some nitrates. <laughs> oh, it sounds like Red Bull. <laughs> Dude, Red Bull has 80 milligrams of caffeine. Oh, wow. That's less than coffee. Is it really? Yeah. yeah. Interesting. All right. Okay. 
Yeah. Doesn't sound like Red Bull at all. No. No. The pre-workouts are a whole other universe from Red Bull. From what I've understood, though, about pre-workouts, the most effective ingredient in most of them is just the insane amount of caffeine in them, like the four, 500, 600 milligrams of caffeine in one go. Yeah, honestly, the best the best thing to really do is if, you know, if you're if you find yourself sluggish, the most important meal of the day honestly is a pre-workout meal. An hour before you go, the right amount of carbs, right amount of protein, not many fats, and you're good. You know, I wake up in the morning, I have a fuck ton of carbs cuz you know, I'm a small frame guy. Six french toasts, egg whites, you know, I meditate for half an hour, next half an hour, ready for the gym and I go and I'm good. You know, I take my, my little, uh, whole foods, fucking yuppie, super green energy booster with like, I think it's like, it's like a dusting of caffeine. It's like, it's kind of moot, you know, but I guess my reason for the day. So I'm like, I'm good, you know, and that works for me. You know, it doesn't always work. Cause you know, it depends on where you're di- where you are in your digestive tract as well and how that's going to actually hit you. Um, and how well you slept There's all these different factors, man. But you know, again, I found what kind of works for me and I stay with that, man. But because at the end of the day, listen, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a chemist. You know, you could do all the research that you want. You know, you're going to find information to support it or not to support it. You know, I'd rather just, I'd rather stick with whole foods and even taking proteins as well. Like I try to get all my macros in from as many whole foods as possible. I do, I'll do like one protein shake a day, you know, that's like cut with like oats and bananas and like whole foods. But, um, unless I'm like really busy and I'm like doing shoots or whatever, and I'm running around, I'll do two just so I can get my, you know, my protein in for the day. But aside from that, man, just try to whole foods. But initially it's like, it's easy, you know, it's, it's a really easy, convenient way to, to get all those proteins. But honestly, the human body can only absorb up to like, what is it? Approximately 35 grams per, you know, uh, of protein per sitting, you know, on average. So, you know, if you're taking a hundred grams of protein in one shake, it's kind of like, you're just pissing out most of it. You know, it's like kind of like a waste and it's expensive, dude. The amount of money that I spent yeah, on these expensive. supplements and the trainer and everything. Jesus Christ, man. Like I have seven of these fucking things. <laughs> He's pointing at some Mesa caps for people not watching. Yeah. I'm over here thinking it's like video. Sounds like you're very, very down to the detail with everything regarding physical life. Where does that factor into the technical aspect of your guitar playing? Like, are you super disciplined with that too? Like, does the diet regimen influence your playing at all? Do you think about recovery with playing? Like, how does this all translate? But it's kind of reversed in a sense, because um, I didn't get into fitness much like the analogy with the tree and the branches, I didn't get into it until I had a reason to. So the reason why I got into it was as a kid, I grew up, you know, always into fashion, always into like, you know, just these incredibly beautiful artistic photo shoots that Larry DiMarzio would do with all these artists, man. We all know the exact images of like those Guitar World covers, you know, and that most of that was really Larry. And um, Tony Sartino, who's a what his stylist that I've been following for years styled most of them. So like all the iconic photos that you've seen of Vi in that gorgeous throne, that's all Anthony and, and Larry. And um, it was always my dream, man, to one day do a shoot with DiMarzio. And then I finally got the call and I was like, holy shit, holy shit, this is actually happening. Like it honest to be straight up, you know, at that point I already had the signature guitar out for two years. I didn't feel like I made it until I did that fucking shoot. That's was like, all right. <laughs> I feel like I'm in now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, and I just wanted to make it the best shoot that they've ever done. 
the best shoot that I can prov- like I wanted to just do my part to just you know just to make it fun you know and to kind of um I guess it was a test for myself but also you know it's just it's just such an iconic thing for me in my head you know it's just to do a shoot with Larry DiMarzio and I was like all right I'm gonna go to the gym and I'm gonna go fucking nuts so I, I started in April I'm sorry no March in 2019 and the shoot was in August it's a good amount of time yeah, the transformation was honestly pretty. I was very, very happy with it. Again, I, I found the trainer that worked for me, and so as far as like the parallel to guitar, short answer is really no. Because I'm at the point too now where I don't really play that much, to be quite frank. Um, whenever I'm playing, I'm playing to write. I'm not playing to work on my chops or anything like that. Like you already did that. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm more focused on composition. You know, um, that's always been my my biggest priority but the technical aspect is just like ah fucking whatever the only time i will say where the the gym became invasive this was i wasn't going as hard but i was you know just maintaining uh before the guitar collective tour in 2018 which is the last tour that i did was me nita strauss and jackie vincent i was doing uh the preacher curl and i i was fucking ignorant and i was pulling way too much weight and it felt fine at the time, you know, but then I got some tendonitis in my forearm. Oops. And if you're doing a lot of legato and a lot of palm muting, yeah, dude, fatigue, like instantly, you know, da, 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 da. oh, Jesus Christ, like this just sharp pain, you know. Um, but once I had the trainer, man, like technique in a very different world was just paramount. I haven't had an injury really since you know, having him on board, which is great because you have an objective opinion from a fucking IFBB pro, you know, he knows his shit. <laughs> All right, you're moving your shoulder this way, you know, whereas like with guitar, you know, once once you feel like you uh, you have your style and you're kind of your sound and you're happy with your guitar playing, it's like, you know, it's just a matter of just composing and improvisation, which go in hand in, you know, hand in hand. There is a parallel there, though, where um, if you go to develop physical dexterity, uh, with guitar and you do it with improper technique, you will end up fucking yourself up very much. Like you just said with lifting weights with improper technique, you fucked yourself up. That's a huge parallel. I mean, it's happened to me. It's happened to lots of people. I know it's like, I gave myself carpal tunnel and tendonitis a few times when I was younger from, uh, going too hard on guitar and not relaxing enough. And it's happened to several people. So I actually think that there's a huge, huge parallel there. Yeah, for sure. Because it's all strength, endurance, right? And technique. There's still muscles here. They're just much smaller. Yeah. Much smaller, easier to break. Yeah. Let me tell you though, obviously we all know this. As you get older, it takes a longer time to get back, you know? I know guys, you know, because I'm 35 now, who uh, they get that shoulder that shoulder impingement or they throw their back out or their knee. Dude, they're out of the gym for like three weeks, you know? And then like imagine having to be on tour with tendonitis. Dude, <laughs> I know. So in 2009, when I was doing my uh, instrumental guitar album, there's an acoustic track on there. And I remember while I was tracking it, something happened in my right shoulder uh, and just this huge golf ball size not developed between my shoulder blade and my spine and my right side. Still there. <laughs> Still there. Jesus. <laughs> Learn to adapt. When it first happened, it was so extreme that it was like 
suffocating me a little bit. Like it literally felt like my ribs were getting like sucked into my chest. Yeah, it takes the wind out of you. Yeah. Yeah. And it took weeks for it to just like release that, but it's still there. Like it never went away. It's, uh, you guys yeah. are like the leaders of stem cell research. I think that hopefully Me? Soon. I am. Well, I, I gave that up <laughs> to do this podcast. Funny that you mentioned that because, um, Chris Letchford actually had an issue too, because like when we, he was explaining where, um, you know, when we play guitar, there's a slight ulterior tilt to, you know, we're not playing like completely 90 degrees, yeah. like, you know, like this, there's a slight, you know, tilting of your body. And, um, he said he had some type of, um, injury in his shoulder, but he was going to PT for quite a while. I think lately, uh, last time I saw him, which wasn't that long ago, maybe about a month ago, you know, it, it's kind of let up, but it, you know, it definitely takes a long time, especially think how long he's been playing guitar, you know, just repeating the same thing over and, over, and not thinking, you know, but it's it, it, to a degree, it's like listening to your body, but at the same time, it's sometimes so micro and minute yeah. over time that, the damage sometimes for some people and for like, like you, man, it's probably already been done, you know, at least let up enough for you to live and play guitar. Well, I don't play guitar Thank anymore. God for that. <laughs> you know, fuck guitar. <laughs> Who plays guitar? Not because of that. <laughs> no, I continued playing for years after that. So I didn't stop because of that. But like, it was definitely impeding my life for a while. I've come to the conclusion that it's never going to go away. So there's always going to be some level of pain involved with my shoulder. After the amount of therapy I've gotten for it and all the shit I've done, it's still there. I don't think it's going anywhere, but uh, but I've learned to live with it. I mean, it's fine. I can kick you in the pain shoulder in if the you mind. want. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Please do. <laughs> or that's insert not love. some crack for you from homemade meth in my bath. How's that sound? <laughs> meth for pain? Dude, do anything. <laughs> Sometimes I wish it could get cut out, but then then I really think about what it means to cut out a piece of muscle, and it's like, nope. Yeah, no, I just have to. I just have to live with it. Maybe it'll pop out as like the alien in a couple of years. Maybe <laughs> it is. It is like a golf ball. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that hurts a lot. Some days are worse than others, but I mean, again, it's you just learn to live with it. Like I think you're right. Obviously, the older you get, the more time recovery takes. I also think, though, that in lots of ways, we just have to accept that we're going to get beat up. <laughs> so whether that's through guitar or fitness or whatever, if you do something physical in life enough, you're going to get hurt. If you don't get hurt, you are one lucky motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> but you, you just need to accept that there's going to be physical ramifications for your actions and find a way to live with it. Yeah, pretty much. So um, we were talking about the posture of Chris a second ago and how he's twisting his body. And one thing I always say is you should, I, I think you're at your most relaxed playing guitar when you stood up because when you sat down, if the guitar's on your right leg, then your right arm or your picking hand is pushing back, which means that it's straining more muscles, you know, from being closer to your bridge. And if it's on your left leg, then the same thing happens on the left-hand side and you're stretching further this mm. way. But when you're stood up, it's kind of somewhere in the middle of those two positions. Fuck playing guitar standing up, dude. <laughs> fuck that. <laughs> Give me a fucking chair. <laughs> Let me be relaxed. Fuck my shoulders. Playing guitar standing up sucks. <laughs> it really does suck the biggest dick, man. So when I had a day job, I, I worked for Puma for a number of years, and I had a standing desk, right? Let me tell you, that was a massive change in my lifestyle overall. 
I felt so much more alert, awake, and I loved it. And when I left that job, I was like, yeah, I'm going to have a fucking standing desk in my studio. Da, 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 da. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, 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 no. There's no way that I'm going to write a song standing up playing guitar. Nope, not happening. Not for me anyway. Oh, man. But it mainly just so that you can understand, you can keep resetting your posture. So if you stand up again and then yeah. try and emulate that when you're sitting down, then that's also positive as well. Because I noticed that when I'm playing guitar for like seven plus hours in a day and I'm sat down with it on my right leg, my right shoulder starts to ache from it being pushed further back than it really needs to be. You play guitar for that long these days? Uh, no, not not at the moment. But like when I recorded the last album, for example. I was about to be like, God damn, dude. Jesus, make me feel like a piece of shit. Dude, I, I mean, I don't even have seven minutes in a day. <laughs> 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 you know, I, I play guitar every single day. Yeah, but whether or not that's seven hours, I mean... Today I had one-on-one, -on -one, so I played it for a certain amount of time, you know? But yeah, I mean, and then I do the live stream, so I play it for like three to four hours during those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just sitting down and actually playing without any sort of, you know, someone calling me or someone telling me that I need to do something. Yeah, I mean, rarely longer than for an sure. hour these days. Yeah, yeah, true that. Um, and it's not because I don't want to. It's literally a case of, that's what we were saying earlier about, you know, when you're a kid and you can just play all this stuff for as long as you want, you don't have any distractions like the paying the rent or... That's why uh, teenagers listening to this, fucking now. <laughs> yeah. Now is the time to bust your ass. Now yeah. is the time. Yes. Or, or, fi or find a partner that wants to pay for everything for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is not to say that people who are older can't do it, but... no. You know, like I've heard of people who pick up an instrument or something when they're 35 and become amazing, world class at it. Like, uh, you know, Dave Pensado didn't start mixing till he was 35, for instance. What? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. He's sick. Billy Decker, the country mixer, I believe he didn't start mixing till he was like 38 or 39. So, anyways, point being, you can start late, but uh, if you happen to be a teenager right now, fucking take advantage. Yeah. Yeah, let, 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 let your parents pay for all your food and all your bills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a luxury you don't know that you have until it's gone. Yep, and time. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, my parents used to say, look, being in school is the best time of your life. And I always used to think they were joking because I don't have any money, I can't do anything. And then all of a sudden, when school finished, it was like, ah, yes, they were correct. <laughs> yeah, well, for some. For some. I don't think of school as the best time in my life at all. Fucking A. I hear that. I didn't either. But it was cool <laughs> to have all that time without the restraint. That was what it was. And no responsibilities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's so funny because when you're like 15 or 16, you think you're an adult. Yeah, I know. Like in your mind, you are. You don't realize you're a child. So like you think you've got it going on. You think you know what responsibilities are. You think you matter? Uh, now you see sixteen. <laughs> now you see sixteen-year-olds, and it's like, holy shit, that is a child! Wow. Yeah. 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 Fucking practice. That's all I can say. <laughs> Use this time in practice. Be awesome by the time you get out of high school. Definitely, one hundred percent. Yeah. The one thing that uh, my parents used to say is, if I don't practice while I'm young, I'm going to regret it later. The thing is, I did practice while I was young, so I don't regret it. But I feel like they were right. If I hadn't worked my ass off, I can totally see how I'd regret it. Because every single year uh, into adulthood, I could do less and less and less and less dedicated practice. Like I think past 30, it got really tough. 
Like in my early twenties, I could still do quite a bit, but like it was still on the decline. And then past 30, it was just really, really hard to just, you know, to focus in that way on a singular pursuit, like getting good at guitar. Mm-hmm. I got the perfect solution for you, mate. Meth in the bath. Yes, yes. <laughs> if only I had a meth addiction, I could have just played 36 hours a day. <laughs> it would have felt like that for sure. Yeah. Oh, no, it would have been 36 hours a day. <laughs> yeah, you'll get really good really fast because before you know it, you're going to look like you're 42 and then you're going to be 45 and there's going to be a time lapse in your life and you'll be like, holy shit, they said in five years I'll be great. It's been five years. It's true. I'm great. <laughs> Man, have you ever known any people who have gotten into that stuff? Me? Yeah. Drugs? A meth specifically. I mean, not meth specifically, but I mean, like, I, I, my family, a lot of substance abuse, man. Oh, really? That's why I left the house when I was 17. I was homeless for two years. In order to get away from drugs? Yeah. Drugs, abuse. So I grew up in a Marine household, too. So there was, there was that aspect as well. And I feel like that's where I get a lot of um, the situational awareness and, and a, being able to adapt, you know, especially with all this COVID shit going on and New York being the guinea pig for that. Um, you know, just, just to know what's up, but I mean, discipline too, you know, the funny thing is you would think so. Yes. And to a degree, yes, not so much, you know, because once you, once you infuse drugs and alcohol and that it's very difficult to really be disciplined about anything other than that. And everything outside of that, you know, it's just kind of like a, like a faded, responsibility, you know, whether it's kids or, you know, upholding a household or anything like that. So for me, um, the reason why I left was because I really wanted to do music, man. And you have to understand, I grew up in, you know, a, a Hispanic household. So white people music was not allowed. You know, the first record I ever, I ever got was Jewel Pieces of You, which I still think is a fucking timeless record, beautifully done. And for me, it was like a gradual progression into heavier music. So it was like, you know, Jewel, Hanson, Alanis Morissette, Savage Garden. Then it was like Nirvana, Bush. Then it was like Alice in Chains, then Metallica, Megadeth, Testament, then Morbid Angel. You know, I was, it was wondering very, when that was coming. Very, very, hmm. yeah. yeah, very, very gradual process. And then from Jewel to Morbid Angel. Yeah, you know, but actually in between that was when I discovered that guitar instrumental music existed. And the funny thing was, because the internet wasn't nearly as robust as it is now. Um, I didn't know it existed. You know, I was just, at the time I was like in a local band in high school and stuff. And I was doing these uh, drills on like a fucking karaoke machine. So I'd have like my doctor rhythm, you know, like the fucking drum beat that we all you know <laughs> used back yep. in the day. And I would record it to tape. And then I would record myself playing along to that on the other tape so I could dub myself. Right. And I just made these practice drills so I could just like do my skills. I don't know what the fuck I was playing. I just trusted my ear, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know that it was Ionian or Dorian. I just trusted my ear. And, um, then I started getting fucking bored of sounding like a robotic piece of shit. So I was like, all right, I'm going to start like having fun with it and just started improvising and just using the same notes and phrasing them differently. And those drills became songs. And then I was like, what if I just did all instrumental music, you know? Oh, I never, no one's ever done that before, <laughs> you know, cause what the fuck do we know? And then I heard Eric Johnson and then I heard Ingve. And then I heard Vi and that was my life really changed because it was like validating because at that point I think I was doing like writing instrumental music probably for like a solid year, man. Like I didn't know any of that shit existed. So 
it was very validating in my efforts. Yeah. And I just wanted to do that, man. And, and playing, anytime I picked up a guitar, anytime I played, I plugged it in, man. It was just like, I had to go through a very fucking difficult time dealing with, uh, you surrounded by people who just didn't want me to do that at all, at all. You know, now, of course I'm the fucking trophy in the family. Right. But back then it, I had to go through some really rough shit. Yeah. So you left in order to be able to do it more. Yeah. I left. And what I was doing was, a. Uh, so I used to skateboard back in the day and I had like my little Marshall valve state and I would you know, stuff all my clothes in the back of the combo, bungee cord it to a skateboard because I wasn't fucking, because I used to walk an hour and a half one way to work, then an hour, you know, to the rehearsal spot and then call whatever one of my friend's moms to say like, hey, can I sleep at your house tonight? You know, and I would just wheel my amp, a bungee cord, my skateboard, my guitar on my back from house to house to house to house to house. I did that for a while. And yeah, man. I, and you know what? And, and as tough as it was, it was probably the most liberating part of my childhood, honestly, because I could just, I had this like, this fucking just weight of just darkness and static that just wasn't distracting me from doing what I was doing. So it was honestly some of the most emotionally happy parts of, you know, my adolescence, despite, you know, where I was going to sleep or eat that day. <laughs> so how much playing were you getting in? Because it sounds like, sounds like a good amount of the day was spent just trucking back and forth between places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was going to school at the time. So like I'm at the mercy of people's schedules as well. Cause obviously like these people were like gracious enough for me to, you know, to house me and to feed me. So, um, everyone was up very early. So my day started early. College didn't last long. Uh, I did that, did that for a year, but I was probably broken up, probably still getting like probably six hours. Every available moment. Every available moment, dude. Like that was my end all be all. Like my, the nucleus of my life was revolved around writing music. When you left, was it just like, I'm out one day, like going to buy a pack of cigarettes, didn't come home kind of thing? Well, no, it, it was a lot more dramatic than that without getting into like, you know, too much detail. But it was at that moment where I was just like, fucking enough's enough enough's enough, man. Like I just, you know, what it comes down to, I feel like, um, inherently different temperaments and I don't mean temper, you know, temperaments is just things about your personality that you can't change. You are who you are to a certain degree, you know? And you're either compatible or incompatible with certain other people. Correct. The way that I explain it is like this, like my yellow and your blue make a really shit green <laughs> and there's nothing that we can do about it. You know, and I've encountered a lot of those motherfuckers in this, in my little career in music. And that's okay. You know, it doesn't mean that we have to be enemies. We don't have to be friends either. You know, so with the family, you know, we've made amends. My, you know, my, they, they got their shit together. Long story short, they're in their fifties now. So thank God for that. You know, love from a distance, man. Cause my life is very peaceful, chill, you know, uh, I'm very grateful for it, man. Like, honestly, I don't even know what to say. Like that, that truly is just, it really does take my breath away because it's something that, um, yeah, not a lot of people get, especially this, in this era, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's a fucking privilege, man. It's such a privilege. So yeah, you know, it's like just healthy love from a distance. If you need anything, I'm here, but otherwise don't bother me. You know, one of, uh, one <laughs> just, of my uh, ex-girlfriends, uh, one that I had a really good relationship with a long time ago. We broke up like 20 years ago or something, mm -hmm. but uh, we remained friends. She had an abusive upbringing and she left the house when she was 16. You know, that's a whole long story. But because of that, because of her actually leaving, that allowed her to uh, flourish with her art. And now her art, 20 years later, is like yeah. 
in museums and like that's you know she's got a phd like uh she is an actual artist not like a good for her not not a hobbyist or anything like an actual professional fine artist there's not very many of those in the world like i guarantee you that had she not left the house when she was 16 to get away from that that it wouldn't have happened. I can guarantee that. Because it was during that time period, during those few years in between, which is when she really like uh, found herself. And I think uh, being with me also taught her what's possible, like uh, getting to see my family and uh, being around people who were like artistic and hyper achiever, super focused types was like, oh, I can do this too. So I think like when I hear stories like that, I'm like, yeah, Good move. Good move. Because had you stayed, who knows, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting because I have a brother as well. And because I was the firstborn in, in the generation of my parents and all my aunts and uncles and stuff. So, you know, I was the one that, you know, I was the guinea pig of like how to, you know, treat a, a child. Yeah. <laughs> right. So like quite the icebreaker and my brother got a little bit easier, but it was a similar upbringing. It wasn't that it wasn't too, too much different because he's only six years younger than me. And, you know, it was very interesting to see the differences, you know, like it, it truly is, you know, two people can have the same experience and have two completely different outcomes, you know, not that his outcomes like, you know, completing the same cycle, but it's interesting. Like he just struggles with ambition a little bit, you know, very postmodernist. <laughs> victimized kind of like, which I find interesting. You know, it's just, it's temperament, man. Whereas you just went out and got it. Yeah, I tried, you know, and I got lucky. Well, yeah, but there's some luck always, but, uh, but I mean, you actually were like, fuck this, the situation's not right for me. And then did whatever possible to get yourself a better situation. That's not luck. And that's, and that's setting the bar pretty low, man. <laughs> Any other situation was better than that. <laughs> a lot of people are in bad situations. And while, you know, they didn't create the situation, like, you know, you don't choose your parents. There's lots of situations in life that are not our fault, but it is our fault if we decide to accept it. Correct. And redo the cycle again and again and again. Exactly. That, that part is our decision, mostly, in most cases. And I think most people don't make the decision to step out because it's scary. Oh, it's really scary, isn't it? Even if it's setting the bar low, it's still scary to step out into the unknown. Yeah. It is, especially that age, especially for a 16-year-old girl, dude. Like, it's terrifying, man. You know, but in some cases, yeah, it can be seen as easy too. You know, it's easier just to stay. But yeah, I think everyone has a point of like, enough's enough, man enough's enough. You know, luckily for me, as I was younger, like I just, even as a kid, man, I would just see how like, even how they would interact with one another. I'm like, God, that's like hurting people. Like I never want to be that way. Like they taught me everything not to do, you know, in life, everything not to do. That's valuable. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. I didn't realize that till I was, you know, and I'm grateful for it, man, because I I don't think I would have, you know, the butterfly effect. Right. But yeah, you know, I mean, Luckily, everyone got their shit together for the most part, and we can all be adults. <laughs> so you said that you spent two years kind of rummaging around, couch surfing and all that? Yeah. Like, there were some instances where I had, like, a consistent situation for, like, a little while. And then, you know, obviously, because I don't want to, you know, take advantage of people's kindness and stuff like that, or be a burden, especially a fucking burden. That's, like, the worst feeling ever. 
but yeah, once those once those situations, you know, weren't viable anymore, just, you know, may do and figure something else out. What was the first time that you felt like any uh, stability in your life? When I was 19. What happened? That's when I, I got my first apartment. And when I got that apartment, that was like, all right, this is, this is lovely. You know, at that time I, I did wind up getting like a full-time job. I was doing a customer service over at Fuji, Fuji film. Oh, sick. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I did that for like, I think like four years. And, um, while I was there, that's when I had the apartment, but I mean, that was also wasn't without struggle either. Cause I mean, like I was just making enough to keep the apartment, but yet again, I had to walk <laughs> an hour and 15 minutes, one way to work an hour and a half, <laughs> like an hour, 15 minutes back. Whereabouts was the apartment? It was in central Jersey. So everything was in New Jersey. New Jersey. All right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So yeah, that was, I had that place for a couple of years, you know, and then, um, got into a relationship eventually then, you know, moved in with that person and 12 years later, here I am. <laughs> Still together? No, 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 no. No, I'm single. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that's a long time. Yeah, that was for a couple years, yeah. So uh, where was your guitar playing in all this? So my guitar playing at that point when I had the apartment, so I had released one full record. (laughs) All right, I'm going to tell you, because you guys are, you know, I hear there's a rumor that you guys are recording aficionados, right? Which I am so not, just for the record. I I learned out of necessity. (laughs) So I'm going to, I'm going to tell you guys how we recorded my first demo, my first demo before the record. So my bassist had, well, his parents had a DV camcorder. Okay. <laughs> we took that DV camcorder. We put it right up in front of my, my combo amp. We recorded the song. We extracted the audio file from the video file. And that's what I use as tracks for the drums. Same video camera up on the basement stairs. <laughs> one track of drums, but we can hear the kick. We can hear the snare. We can hear the tom. Everything was like, okay. <laughs> so that was the first round of gem- uh, demos. It was called Hymn of Dreams that came out in like 2004, I believe. Cause I started in 2003, um, 2004, 2005. Cause like locally I was always playing shows, you know, before I had recorded music and er- everyone was like, Oh, do you have any CDs? No, you know, I can't afford that. Can barely afford to get here, let alone get fucking, you know, studio time anywhere. So, you know, we just had to use our resources and, and that's what we did. By the time I was 19 and I had my own apartment, I had a full length record called Revelations that came out in 2007 or 2008. And that got in the hands of this band, 40 Below Summer, if you know 40 Below Summer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then I joined the revival of 40 Below, which was called Black Market Hero, which was me, uh, some of the members from 40 Below and some of the members from Flaw. So I was with them for two years. And during that time, they had, you know, we had actually, we shared a, uh, a rehearsal space with Il Nino and all the Black Market Hero demos were done in there. So once I heard that level of production, I was like, holy shit, like you guys would be down, like, you know, to record some of myself. They're like, yeah, absolutely. So I recorded uh, The Speed of Dark, which was the first EP that I feel like really, really took off. And uh, just because the production wasn't, you know, completely fucking raw. But prior to that funny, it was like really just sevenstream.org boards that I got like my first little wave of like, you know, recognition. And I owe a lot of that to Chris Quigley, who like he was the owner of the boards at the time. He ran them and it was during the MySpace days. And I would just fucking every for hours do just like go in all of Steve I's friends and one by one, click, add message, click, add message, click, add message. And I just got him. And he made a post about me. He's like, dude, have you guys ever heard of this guy? Da, 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 da. And, you know, because he vouched for me, obviously everyone really respected his opinion and still do. So then uh, by the time the second record came out, you know, I had a little bit of win, but that second record really helped me out tremendously. And then um, 
I was writing my third record, Universal Language, at that time. And uh, the band was just kind of moving pretty slow. You know, everyone had like houses and kids and stuff like that, some of them. And um, so I left Black Market Hero, did Universal Language, and then everything really popped off for me with that record. And then, uh, which was done by Will Putney. That was the first record that he had done with me. And yeah, and then once once I, I, I started tying like visuals to everything that I was doing, which I always wanted to do, but obviously I couldn't fucking afford it. That's when I feel like I found what works for me. You know, I kind of look at it like fucking like a key to success, you know, and every groove of that key is something that you offer, you know, like how well can you write a song? How well can you write a hook? How well can you play a guitar? You know, how well can you treat a music video? You know, if you're talking to people, how well can you engage? And it was just like, I feel like a lot of people now, what they do is they see what like Jared Dines is doing. It's like, all right, so funny videos gets a lot of views. All right, see, so they try that. Then they fail miserably at it. They put that key in a slot and they're like, uh, all right, that's not working. All right, so, uh, all right, we're going to see what Angel's doing. All right, so Angel does, da, 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 da. all right, we're going to try that. All right, that doesn't work. All right, all right, John Brown, he, he writes, all right, he's doing this podcasting. I'm going to try that, you know? And it works for some people and it kind of doesn't, but it's a matter of like kind of like refining your groove in the key to kind of work for you. And at that point for me, like I found what works for me. And it's just since then just really outdoing what I've done previously and that's kind of, cause I'm a very competitive person. <laughs> and at that point I started to understand the healthy ways to compete, you know, like now I compete against no one, but my previous album cycle, you know, and what the song sounded like, what the visuals looked like, what the concept was. So was, I don't remember what your question was, but that was, I feel like that was thorough. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was thorough. Do you feel like uh, sometimes people give up to soon on trying a certain direction like you were talking about they see jared dines did something so they try a funny video and it fails so they're like fuck that i can't do that when in reality jared dines he worked really hard at that it, even if you think it's dumb like he worked his ass off at it like everyone who's known for anything like this any sort of creative content probably didn't spring out the womb doing it at the level that they're known for. Yeah. I 100% do feel that. But I also feel another aspect of it is self-awareness. Knowing what you're really good at and knowing what makes you happy. Knowing if you don't have the personality like where you're not comfortable in front of a camera, don't put yourself in a situation unless you're, the end goal requires you yeah. to. You know, if, if you want to be a fucking crazy big rock star. Well, you have to have a fucking personality. You want to do a podcast? You have to have a fucking personality, you know, to do these things. You, you know, to do Jared Dines skits and stuff like that, you have to have a personality. And you have to know how to wield it in a way that's relatable, unique, and engaging, you know, but backed by validation. Because listen, Jerry, he's, he's a multi-instrumentalist and he plays those instruments. He's a competent musician, right? So it's not just a matter of one aspect in his groove, you know, in his key that works for him. It's multiple things, you know, same thing with like Tosin Abasi, you know, um, you know, being very inventive, like, you know, and, and very unique and, and very avant-garde in the type of music that he does. Even minute things like the type of guitar that you play. And I feel like a lot of people overlook this. So when I go to Nam and a fan comes up to me, like, hey, I'm a big fan, da, 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 da. I look at them like, you're the guy with the purple kiesel, right? Holy shit, yeah. And it lights up their fucking, you know, Malmsteen, cream color strat, Vi, white and gold, you know, Ibanez, Satriani. Typically we go with the chrome boy, right? That that was like yeah. 
That's what we identify him. Me, pretty much almost anything with gold pickups or the green and gold, right? And it's a visual landmark to kind of help separate you from what's happening, right? Especially in a super overrated, uh, rather oversaturated, but possibly overrated too. (laughs) (laughs) Freudian slip. (laughs) But but yeah, it's like all these little things that, that kind of, help you visually and artistically be unique. Yep. And the only best way to be unique is to be who yep. you are. And it's easier because if I had to be a fake motherfucker, I'm sorry, I have way too much shit to do that spreads me so thin. I don't have the time to move to LA and be some superficial fucking da, 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 you know, making facades of inspirational posts to make someone feel okay for five fucking minutes. Fuck that, dude. I post when I have something to say and I'm genuine about what I want to say and how I say it, you know, and it's a lot less work, yeah. you know, but it t- it's a journey to get to that point. I feel for every artist or anything that someone wants to do in life, it takes time and self-awareness. Well, the Jared Dines example is actually really good because uh, he didn't just start making funny videos. Like he knew how to record. Mm -hmm. He knew how to play several instruments. He knew how to put riffs together. He knew he had several different skills that he drew upon in order to be able to make that one thing happen. So like when a lot of people hit me up trying to ask about when they should like start selling online content or how do they build a community like URM or Riffhard or uh, how do you do something like URM? How can they do something like URM? And the thing that I always tell them is have a legit career first at what it is you want to do because URM only works because I was in a band for a long time, then did production for a long time and have like all those years worth of experiences and contacts and all that. And the time I spent at Berkeley and like all my education and like all of those things and my partners and their production careers, like all of that put together allowed us to do this thing. If we had just done nothing and then started making tutorials, like we're some random dude in a basement in Norway making recording tutorials, there's no way we could have built this thing up just like with Riff Hard. If uh, John didn't have his background already an established reputation for how he plays with the band, all that stuff. There's no way that Riff Hard could have moved this fast. It just, there's no way it would, would have happened. People wouldn't have listened to the podcast right away. Like none of it would have been, I mean, sure, maybe it could have done something, but in my opinion, to do something successful, you have to do a bunch of other things first and then put them together into something that's, uh, you know, where the sum is greater than the parts, basically. Correct. It goes a little bit further than that as well, I think. I think that you also have to find your kind of niche as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, so it's like, it's fair enough someone going up to you and say, hey, I want to write music like Angel. But at the end of the day, you never will You because it will always have elements of you. It's just understanding that you use that as an inspiration for what you want to do. Rather than trying to imitate, just use it as inspiration because there's, there's no way you can imitate completely 100% what someone else is doing. Correct. If you take that out of the equation and think, I'm going to write music, but I'm going to be inspired by that, then you write music that's you. And therefore, there's your, not gratification, but that's your sort of foothold into what it is you want to do. You've created your little niche by doing that. Correct. And I think that, you know, you stumbled on a keyword there, imitate, right? So I made this post um, some time ago about 
obviously there's more guitarists now online than there probably ever was, yep. right? Or more guitarists in general because there's more exposure to it, you know, and more exposure to trends in guitars. So, you know, I said something along the lines of um, fucking hell, guys, enough with the neo-social, <laughs> right? Because this, the second I, I see, I hear that spanky, chicka-chicka kind of shit, like you're a tryhard who's imitating someone else's sound, just let the original people have their fucking sound, right? And, you know... For them, sometimes, I'm not going to say all the time because that would be fucking egotistical and, and stupid and foolish, but sometimes I I can see another side to it. So the one thing I realize is this. I'm of the of the generation where like once I started posting shit online in MySpace, like I was already kind of set in my sound for the most part because I did all my work behind closed doors. There was no outlet for people to see amateur progress, right? Or like the Ingve clones who get pretty fucking yeah. close if we're being for real. Like he's the one, one, one of the guys who can get, but good luck doing someone like Vi or Satriani. But anyway, I, I digress. So part of the young person who plays guitars journey is a matter of yep. imitating, right? And is a matter of having to post if they want to have any type of long career. So what happens is the public is forced to see the growth from like, you know, early 20s on. And I've said this in other podcasts too, but I'm very interested to see like what Polyphia and Chan and the younger generation of guitarists is going to, I wonder what they're going to sound like when they're in their, in their 40s, you know? I'm just, I'm, I'm curious to see what that metamorphosis is going to be like because insanely influential, right? And also all the fans that they influence, like what are they going to sound like, right? So it's it's kind of like a dual thing, you know? It's just a different generational gap of understanding, you know? And it wasn't until like maybe like a couple of days, I was like, I remember I was in the shower just like thinking about that post, you know? Because a lot of people were like, yeah, I fucking agree, you know? But then I was like, you know, maybe it's just a matter of perspective. It is. You know? I think it is. Like there's nothing wrong with trying to imitate something while you're trying to do it. But as you said, like right. I kind of did that before posting it on the internet. But now people want to show their progress because they're excited about it and there's nothing wrong with that. But it also, instead of like, you said Neo Soul, obviously with, uh, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. But You know exactly it, what it, I mean. But mm -hmm. the same thing happened just on a much smaller scale with previous genres as well. I mean, that's why like most of your grunge bands are from Seattle. <laughs> so they used to go to shows and see it and then they would try and imitate it. And then same with Thrash in the Bay Area. Absolutely. And what's different right now is that with the internet, we can literally just look and there's someone halfway across the world doing this different sound and it's like, oh, I want to be the first one to do this. Right. That's right. what happens. Spot on. So it's, Absolutely. it's the same thing. It's just on a bigger scale and you're forced to listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that creativity develops in stages, right? And imitation is one of the earlier stages, like before someone has like the facility to really develop ideas of their own and then not just develop them, but materialize them in the real world because they, they haven't forged those pathways yet, but they know they want to do this thing. All the only reference, only frame of reference they have is stuff that other people have done that already exists. So it makes sense that the first expression is going to be trying to imitate whatever it was that got them to do it in the first place. So that's fine. Uh, however, you kind of can tell the measure of someone's potential by how long they're stuck in that phase, 
people who have true creativity won't be stuck there for too long. But I mean, look, if you, even if you go to Meshuggah's early work, it sounds like Metallica ripoff kind of stuff before they found their own sound. Like any great band, if you go back far enough, there's a time before they were that great where most great bands sound like they're ripping off somebody that they used to listen to. And then they like find their own thing and they're like off to the races, basically. Yeah. It's like the the analogy of standing on the shoulders of your giants, you know? And, you know, for me, like growing up, I mean, obviously like when it came to like rock music, you know, it was a quite an evolution for me, but I mean, I grew up on Spanish music and house and freestyle, you know, Jersey bread, you know, so a lot of dance music and, um, which still, I mean, if I had to choose one type of music, I mean, it's definitely gonna be, you know, progressive house that I love absolutely to like the day I die. But aside from that, it was like disco funk, you know, and all these, you know, unbeknownst to me at the time, very, you know, musical genres. But then when I got to rock, I mean, like originally when I was doing instrumental and I found out about, you know, all these other guys doing it, like my, my objective initially was just to, you know, cause for me it was kind of like a mix of, it's a weird mix, Tool, Chevelle, Soul Work, In Flames, and uh, Evergrey, and a little bit of Dream Theater, but not too much. So like that meld was probably the antithesis or like the summary of what that first record kind of sounded like, you know, but there's like blueprints and and formulas with different genres, right? So like salsa music has a specific blueprint, you know, like merengue has a specific blueprint, like radio rock has a very particular blueprint. And once I started understanding, because you know how it is, it's like you're learning covers, right? And the covers, Dyer's Eve is what taught me how to like write a song, you know, in a certain way. And then Chevelle's point number one taught me how to write songs in a very different way. And then learning Nirvana songs taught me how to write songs in a very different way. And I feel like that's the reason why I probably genre hop as much as, I'm, as, as, do, as I do, because, you know, like I'll have like, you know, my tech death metal songs and I'll have my fucking ballads, you know, that kind of borderline kind of like pop country. It's just, you know, I guess it's, it's what you expose yourself to. But like you said, at the same time, you can't force what you're going to like and what you're really going to like, uh, not like, and it's a matter of timing as well. But because I think I was just in a household with just so many different fucking colors of music just being thrown at me. And not to mention the first time I ever played with other musicians was at church. You know, we're playing Spanish music. It was like a mainly, you know, Hispanic and African American town that I grew up in. So it was very, um, culturally diverse and the music we played was super diverse. And I was like, when I started playing in church was, uh, I think I was like 16 and I did that on and off for a number of years. Uh, but for the first full year, I was like numerous times a week, man. And I was a hungry little, you know, rock metal head <laughs> and playing Spanish rhythm guitar, you know, rhythm guitar always comes first. I mean, like that's always been my priority and just knowing when to play and when not to fucking play, man. And I'll never forget the musical director one day, like I, I was just like going off and I was having a good time thinking, I'm just like, oh, this is awesome. I feel so like I'm doing a good job. And he let me have it. He's like, okay, yeah, 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 sure. You know? <laughs> and then he recorded me. He recorded that. And he pulled me aside one day. And this was like the first wave of like, you know, when you break a fucking cold sweat because you're just so embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> he played back that tape for me, dude. My heart fell into my asshole. And I was like, I'm off rhythm. I am playing way too much because we have piano, choir, trumpet, two acoustic guitars. I'm an electric guitar, percussion, drum set. It's a full band, not a lot of space for electric guitar, to be completely honest, you know, but 
you know, in a church environment, if anyone's passionate about playing, of course, yes, come, come, come. So it took me a little while to, to learn how to fucking wield when to play. And so what we would do is we would take like Santana songs and Mark Anthony songs and Elias Santiago songs, and we would, they would change the lyrics to be religious, but just to like relate to the culture of that town, you know, cause that was a big, big deal, you know, that, that, that type of music. So that was the first like revelation of like, holy shit, man, like awareness, dude, yep. awareness. But it wasn't until like the, the beauty of listening to yourself back. Cause you're just having so much fun while you're doing it in real time, man. Like that you can't, you can't be here and objectively hovering over you <laughs> and, and listening. It's just impossible. That's why the beauty of recording is so integral. And I feel like that's when people have that aha moment is when they hear themselves back. Holy shit. I can't play to a clip. Definitely. That was definitely the <laughs> aha moment for me. Same for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's one of the things that I constantly push at Riff Hard as well. It's just getting people to like video themselves and record their audio and not only listen to it, but look at where you are based on the beat. Because let's be honest, even to this day, I still play out of time. Bullshit. I definitely, dude, I do. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I'm just kidding. Same, man. Absolutely. That's why I track myself here. When I was tracking with Will Putney, like Will Putney, like watching him. That guy's intense. He's a very intense man. <laughs> he's done a number of my records. I adore him. I, I can't say enough about him. But just watching him track, watching him mic and just do all those little things, I'm like, this is a gift. And, you know, luckily, I guess much like, you know, in, in a negative aspect of like, you know, seeing my parents do the wrong thing, I'm watching someone do the right thing. And I'm like, holy shit. Okay, I'm understanding this. Because the other thing too is like, you know, I didn't foresee myself being in a position where I'm going to have this as a career to, you know, sustain myself forever. So I'm like, you know what? I should learn what he's doing just so I could save some money and do it myself. But now it's not so much a money aspect so much as it is a stress-free environment. Like I'm very sensitive to my environment. So like my house, my studio, I have it. I like it to feel a certain way, you know, and I like to work at my own pace. So like now, um, leads I track here, but you know, rhythm guitars, we track in a studio, drums, we track in a studio and, um, bass will do here as well. And it's a nice, happy medium, two things in a studio, two things here in a controlled environment where we can be experimental and just take our time, you know, cause I don't like to waste people's time. Like what is it that you liked about working with a producer? The thing that I liked working with a producer. Putney specifically, but I mean, you, he's the only producer you've mentioned and he's worth mentioning. Yeah. He's honestly the only one I've worked with. <laughs> he, he's, so I mean, like, you're, I'm just put out a course with him. Like, uh, I'm well aware of how awesome he is. Uh, he's fucking great. Yeah. Fantastic. So he did universal language. He did my crystal planet single. He did away with words part one, but that was also Randy, his protege, who's just, he's good too. Oh, he's phenomenal. He's actually doing away with words part two, which I'm going to be doing in, uh, the spring. Which Randy is that? LaBeouf. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's my baby. I love that guy, man. Labouef. How the hell do you say his name? <laughs> Labois. I don't know. Labois. R- R- it just Randy sounds Labois. expensive. It's a very expensive last Randy name, Labois. isn't it? Yeah, he's in my phone as Randy LaBaby because he's just my baby. I love that man. Isn't he from Louisiana? Yes. Okay, so just probably a French pronunciation that I can't do. So Labois. Yeah, for all intents and purposes, he's, Le Le he's Randy LaBaby. Le <laughs> but uh it's not la it's le 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 bois with both of those guys i mean they have a very different approach as far as like suggesting different things 
Will, I mean, when I recorded with Will, like he tracked, produced, mixed and mastered a universal language. And by that time, like the songs are pretty like set in, but there was a couple parts I always leave open, you know, just like improv and stuff like that. His ear is very, is just different than mine. And I appreciate that. So just out of curiosity, uh, you're talking about his ear. Do you think for you to like go into a situation with a producer where they're going to be able to make suggestions to you. Do you have to go in already respecting them? Like, cause it's will, for instance, like no pun intended, but you'd be willing to take his, his suggestions because you know that he's badass and you respect him. Yeah. That first record, it was very, like I trusted him wholeheartedly. Whenever he had a suggestion, I'm like, I tried it. And if he liked it, I was like, cool with me. You know, once I did like away with words part one, so Randy, I think, did more of the, you know, production in terms of helping to write and think of different parts, tracking the bass, variations, doing the leads with me, variations. He was a little bit more hands-on in that. And then Will wound up mixing and mastering Away With Words Part 1. Randy is a lot like me in the sense that he listens to a lot of different types of music. And he's good at a lot of different types of music, man. Fantastic piano player good guitarist like and and his ear like we listen because we listen to very um uh sort of obscure unknown artists like our ears like very similar in certain respects that was the most hands-on experience i had with someone else giving me you know ideas um and it was very rare where i didn't feel like what he said is what i intended to do but i couldn't do so it was like much like, dude, my yellow and Randy's blue makes the most fucking gorgeous shade of green, man. Like, I absolutely, I, I appreciate it. I'm really looking forward to um, doing this next record with him because this next record's, there's no seven string. There's no rock. There's very little distortion. It's quite a genre hopper. And I feel like that's, he's going to help that record shine significantly more, you know, than I feel like it's already. So by the same token, do you think that because Randy was, I guess, vetted through will and has that track record through will that because of that, you're open to letting him fuck with the music? No, not even. I think, um, so at first when he's like, Oh, my boy, Randy's going to track you. I was like, Oh man, you're not going to track me, man. You know, mm-hmm. Oh, you're passing me off. And passing me off, yeah. But then I met Randy, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm in good hands, man. <laughs> this guy's, this guy's the fucking bee's knees." And we got on so well, dude. Like he's just, he's just absolutely incredible. But then, you know, obviously with that record, like I feel like out of all of my records, "Away with Words" Part One had like the most just fucking. That's that's my my guitar, my rhythm guitar reference going forward. Like the rhythm guitar on that record is just exquisite. I feel like it's 100% what the sound and the feel like, you know, when you hear a guitar tone and you know exactly what it feels like, what you think, you know, what it feels like to play through that rig and how it responds. It's just like, man, I I just can't say enough with, and that was, and that was Will, like he, he mic'd everything up and and he got the tones and then, you know, Randy was uh, doing engineering and just like giving me ideas from then on. But I will say one thing about Will with when it came to the drums, he knew how to get fucking incredible performances out of Bill. Bill's been my drummer since 2008. Bill 4. Yeah, Bill 4. He knew how he knew exactly what those songs needed, man. Cuz with Bill like, you know, I've had the same guys in my band since 
God, 2008, 2009, my guitarist, but uh, my bass is 2007 since then. They're still with me here. But with Bill, I always, because like, he's like my musical soulmate, dude. Like that guy, like I, I trust him wholeheartedly. And if he's not prepared, I don't really worry, you know. I used to worry, you know, because I'm like, oh my God, I'm paying for all this. If you're not prepared, I don't want him to waste people's time, you know, da, 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 da. But Will just knew how to wield him in a way that he just got these magical, magical performances out of him. Like, I just can't say enough witnessing that chemistry was just beautiful. That's what a great producer <laughs> Absolutely does. beautiful. Yeah, that's what a great producer yeah. should do. You know, it's not just hit the record button and know how to comp. It's a lot more than that for sure. And and I understood it at that point for sure when we, when he was tracking, you know, because obviously drums are first and I was like, ooh, okay, <laughs> I see what's up, you know? And, um, but I think any musician who's very emotionally attached to his music is always going to be a little bit hesitant having a new ingredient in the soup. You know, I think that's pretty natural, but I think it's also a matter of trusting you know, you have to trust. And that doesn't mean to trust every anyone, you know, there has to be. Yeah. So what does it take for you to be able to trust? I just need to hear what they've done. I need to hear what they've done. I need to know that they're like-minded. Yeah. Cause you're not just going to trust anybody. You can, that, that, that would be doing your art a huge injustice, you know, and keep in mind, albums are like porn. They're forever. <laughs> they, they are forever out there, you know, like good luck, good luck. So, you know, I, 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 I very, I take every step very, you know, carefully, but with Will at that point, I mean, like he had, he was actually doing, um, Digital Veil, which was, uh, Human Abstract's last record. So he was just finishing that as I was going in to track Universal Language. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, like I knew that that was the only project that he had at the time as well. So he had time. And that's the other thing too, is like, you know, making sure that, cause for, I think, you know, for whether you're doing a music video or whether you're doing a, a record, um, obviously when it comes to investment, obviously there's no question about it. The artist is always going to be much more invested than anyone else that you hire to do your record. For them, it's just a small era of their life. Whereas for you, it's your like life. two, three years, you know? And um, so making sure that you choose someone who gives a fuck to give you the time and isn't overbooked and isn't going to, you know what I'm saying? And it's just going to like, you know, just rub one out on your record and just bleh done. You're off on your way, you know? And that was another thing that he, he gave a lot of attention, you know, to that record and, and every record since then, honestly, because he also did, he did Way With Words Part One, he did the Crystal Planet single, and he also did Synapse, my last record. And every record was a little bit different too, like as far as like how things were recorded. So like between doing your universal language with him and watching him do everything and then doing Away With Words Part One with you know, Randy tracking and learning everything. Yeah. I think it was more validating for me because I'm looking at him and I'm like, I do that same thing when I was doing my pre-production. Okay. I'm on the right path. You know, it's like <laughs> validating in a sense, just so that I knew how to track effectively and competently. And then once I did, um, Synapse, that was a, a bit of a different approach. So Kevin Antresian tracked drums. We tracked drums at his place and rhythm guitar there as well. That record, so conceptually, it's it's a very dense record. Because I always do concept records. I love concept records. There's always some type of like vibe, you know. Because like when I when I look at the records that like impacted me, like the Downward Spiral had a vibe to it, you know. Like Boys for Pele had a vibe to it. In Utero had a vibe to it compared to like Nevermind. You know, those are beautiful opportunities to tell a story, especially when you're doing guitar instrumental. There's no fucking lyrics. All you have are song titles, right? What the fuck does, you know, 
skydiving with a kangaroo mean? What the, f you know, <laughs> like, so I use those opportunities to kind of like tell a bit of a story. So it synapse was about neurotransmitters like dopamine, adrenaline, serotonin, yeah. things of that nature. And, uh, they were very, uh, you know, so adrenaline was very fast paced and aggressive, you know, where GABA or adenosine was a little bit more like a lullaby, like just kind of stripped back, like just straight up rock songs, you know, not so much metal. And, um, when I tracked, uh, cause every little facet of that record, I mean, um, even down to how I wrote it. So I got into like color psychology and, uh, what I did was, um, cause like I mentioned before, I'm very sensitive to my environments and I was like, fuck man. I'm hitting another thing on writer's block and I do not want to get depressed. I have a fucking record to write and I have to write it. What can I do to trick my mind into writing? And I realize I'm like, when do I write the most? When I write the most is when I move. And you move into a new space and you have a new environment. The first thing you do is you set up your fucking studio and just like riffs and, and fucking ideas just like secrete out of my pores, man. It's so easy. I'm just inspired. It's new and it's invigorating. So... Um, so I love interior design. I'm 100% convinced. And I didn't mention this before. If I wasn't a musician, I would 100% be into interior design. <laughs> that is, that is not a hobby. That is a fucking passion, dude. That makes my dick hard. I love changing and lighting an area. It just, I cannot, oh my God, be still my heart. <laughs> oh, with the record. So what I did was <laughs> I assigned a color to every one of the songs. So I had nine songs. So dopamine was black, serotonin was green, adrenaline was red. And I fucking went in my old studio. I painted my studio black and I wrote dopamine. I'd only write it at night. I'd wear black uh, serotonin. I'd painted a green, filled my studio up with plants. I wore green, only wrote it during the day. Adrenaline was red, painted my fucking studio red. And while I was doing this and I never released it because... Uh, a couple reasons why, but I was filming everything, right? So I this like, so for instance, uh, when I was shooting myself writing serotonin, <laughs> I rigged up, uh, you know, um, a slider, an automated slider on my camera with plants hanging over the lens with me in focus, like just really artistic shots as I'm doing this, right? So as I'm writing the song, click, click, oh, battery's dead. Click, click, oh, card's full. It's kind of like, Stopping in the middle of sex to fucking fix a camera, right? Because you're on a roll, like you're in a fucking zone. Yeah. So I did that and it was like, dude, halfway through I had an, I about had a nervous breakdown because it was like 20 something coats of paint. Because when you're doing a black wall, you can't just do a black wall. You have to do gray primer first, then you do the black wall. If you're doing a red wall, you have to do a pink primer first then a red, you know, then the, you know, the red paint. Otherwise, especially on film with how it was lighting everything, if you don't paint properly- yeah. You see all the little spots that you didn't get. And the the adrenaline I struggled with the most because I had to paint that fucking wall twice <laughs> because it just didn't look good on film. And I was like, there's no fucking way. There's no fucking way. Because <laughs> again, this is forever once I release this documentary. So the reason why I never released it, because my record came out in 2017. So I was very, very close friends with Ollie Herbert. And he did a guest solo on Dopamine and... He came out to my studio and he, I have hours of footage of us like tracking his solo in my studio. And I just, dude, after what happened, I just, I just didn't even, the thought of it sitting on my hard drive, I, I just, just, I'd never wanted, I just couldn't look at it, dude. I just, it was just, it was too soon. 
And then I got busy with other projects. Think you'll ever get around to it? No, I haven't gotten around to it, man. The only thing, um, I did get around to like marking the moments, the magic moments, but um, the only thing I have to do is really uh, do the commentary. Now I'm okay. I'm in a place where I can look at the footage and like, you know, kind of smile and, you know, might get a little fucked up for a little while. But but now I'm so, it's been so long, you know, and I've toured so much since then that I'm, I'm in, I'm already in, you know, the next chapter of this new record, it'll come out someday. It will come out someday because I put way too much fucking time and thought into it. But you painted your room for every song you wrote. That's pretty hardcore, man. It was a couple of other things beyond that. So what happened was this. So like, you know, you know, like ASMR videos and stuff like that. Like, yeah, of course. All right. So like for a dentist scene, I've been told I should do an ASMR channel. Yeah, you have you have a very soothing voice. You do. I'm not doing it, but I've been told I should. <laughs> I'm just saying, you just you just 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 a, just a career thoughts, a plan in your, you. in your brain. So I, I you know, I, I definitely have that sensation. So for adenosine, like the sleep molecule, I would like only write that super late at night after I've been watching ASMR videos in my kitchen. Like, and you get to the point where you're like dozing yeah. off, like your eyes are like anchors, and I would just stop what I'm doing jump into the studio and see what would happen. Adrenaline I do after a workout. After a bathtub full of meth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll brew up a batch and go. Well, okay. So funny that you mentioned the meth. I, I didn't think that this would have a parallel to any <laughs> any topic in this podcast, but alas, here we are. So for dopamine, it's a pleasure molecule, yeah. right? So aside from like doing, you know, like studio black and wearing black and writing it at night and stuff, I definitely partook in certain things <laughs> that put me in different states of mind. Did you make some meth in your bathtub, mate? <laughs> Not meth, not meth, no, but I, I definitely indulge in some uh, lifely pleasures. We'll leave it at that. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's interesting, man. Like there's certain things that some of those songs, they, I feel like it kind of forced me out of the habitual licks and mindsets that typically we all go to, you know, like our typical, like our bag of tricks kind yep. of, you know, it kind of forces, I don't know, man, I, those songs would not have come out that way if I didn't change my environment. But I will say one thing, as much work as it was, it worked. There was not a time, aside from the song Adrenaline, I, I definitely struggled with that song quite a bit, but there, I don't remember any significant struggle at all, really. It flowed quite nicely. I felt like there was a couple of things. I feel like the environment helped, but I think the workload of having to take my desk out and fucking paint it and shoot it and find angles that are artistic, da, 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 I think it just psyched me into just writing, you know, and, and being a little more free-flowing with my ideas. I don't know. It, <laughs> That is intense. I just never know to do that. Is it something about going all out and making it immersive, you think? Yeah, I think it's it's a matter about honoring, honoring the concept of the record, right? So like, you know, universal language was a season on different planets, you know, it's like a Martian winter, a Mercurian summer, you know, and even with that, it's like, well, what would a Mar what would a winter on Mars sound like, right? So then that melody kind of came out of that thought process. Away with words. So it's a two-part record part one and part two part one is just the track listing is in morse code it's one two three four five and then part two is six seven eight nine and zero and it's very interesting how that worked out because the whole concept is yin and yang okay yeah right so part one was you know just typical what people know me to do you know metal with this with a ballad <laughs> essentially and this next record it's and i and when i say funk latin jazz 
Latin fusion, very acoustically driven. I'm not talking about like a section in a song and like, oh, I'm fucking playing funk. No. It's the medium funk 114 part. <laughs> no, it's like, it's a full on, like, it's a full on Prince song. It's a full on Michael Jackson song, which just leads that complement the meat and potatoes. So like the way that I, I look at the song like music in general that I write it's like you know the rhythm guitar and the song itself is the meat and potatoes listen everyone can live on meat and potato maybe not John because he's a vegetarian <laughs> now but you can have you can find sustenance in meat and potatoes with no seasoning at all and you're fine but like it's a matter when you do the leads or whether there's vocal like that's really what the seasoning is it's like you know I'm not going to put fucking oregano on my mashed potatoes I'm going to put chive because it's a certain way of speaking to to complement the song, much like a seasoning would complement this particular dish, you know? So like with this record, I had the concept for it for a while and I honestly thought that I was going to struggle with it more than I am. But because like, you know, I played in church and I listened to, you know, such a variety of music, like it's, it's flowed pretty easily. It probably easier than previous records for some strange reason. And it's quite nice not having to struggle and to think of like, all right, where where's the breakdown gonna go? Where are my sweeps gonna go? You know, there's none of that shit. I mean, maybe a, like a, a splash of it in here and there, but like, it's kind of like the love child of like Alcest and Tori Amos and Snarky Puppy and just it's like everything that I always wanted to do and it's just coming out quite lovely. I'm quite happy with it. Nice, sick. So we have some questions here from our listeners. If you don't mind, I'd like to ask you a few of them. Absolutely. First one from Jonathan Davies, which is, how did you come up with these insanely nice color combos for your signature guitar? Well, that's the fan's fault, really. <laughs> so I got a couple of mock-ups for the Nova and they were all gorgeous and I couldn't choose. I'm like, oh my God, you know, this is like a big business decision. You know, I was, you know, I asked Fender what, you know, owns Charvel for those of you don't know, which a lot of people don't know that, which I found very surprising. But so I asked him, I was like, hey, would you guys be down if like we had the fans vote for the color? Because I feel like it'll be a win-win, you know, like I like all of them equally, you know, whatever color people want, we'll sell more guitars and it'll make the fans happy. And it'll be kind of nice to get the fans involved. It was kind of neck and neck. It was a sage, metallic, mint green and uh, the black that came in second. So, you know, we released a green one first and then the year, next year we did the black one and this coming year we're going to do a third one and I, which I'm very, very excited about. So, do you know what would have been, what have been good for you to show the different colors would have been to get Charvel over to your home and get them to paint your walls in the guitar <laughs> colors. <laughs> would have been sick. <laughs> Yeah. So it's funny. Cause like when I was doing that record, I had just left Ibanez. So in the documentary, like it's mostly, you know, and it's so funny, like, because by the time I released that record, I had announced that I was already with Charvel. And when they heard the record, like, Oh, your tone sounds so different. You fucking asshole. Like a lot of it is the Ibanez and there's a Jackson in there and there's a Charvel. It's like, it's a mishmash of everything. So it's just like, Oh, people are fun. <laughs> Yeah, they're going to hate you for that idea, man, because now I'm all like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so next question is from Baz uh, Nijenhoff. Let's go. Baz Peters v. Nijenhoff. That's quite a name, isn't it? I'd say that's a good name. I'm going to re rejuggle this question a little bit, yeah, just so it's a little bit um, better. Um, what's your writing process, and does it start with a riff or a melody first? 90% is always the riff. It's very rare where the lead comes first. 
Um, much of the analogy that I said beforehand with the meat and potatoes, like a plate of seasonings ain't it. Unless that melody, it like moves your soul and you can, and the melody's versatile enough where like you can have different riffs around that melody and it still works. But it's always the riff in the song first, I would say like, again, like 90% of the time for sure. And obviously when it comes to the concepts, I've done a, a multitude of different like writing methods, you know, so good example way with words part two a lot of open tuning two hand tapping kind of stuff on the acoustic that you know i use for the rhythm guitar which completely changed the way that i play because it's not you know scales fuck them there's none of that you just go with your ear and what feels good for you and uh and i think that having a concept in place kind of helps you know it kind of keeps you structured and not so like doing, 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 all yeah, over the place doing, 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 doing. Yeah, (laughs) as I point to different points in my air, you know, in my vicinity. But um, yeah, like, you know, obviously a Martian winter or adrenaline, you know, I'm not going to put like a soulful ballad, you know, for a song that I want to call adrenaline and make it authentic. So, you know, uh, establishing your attention, I think is pretty important too. All right. Question from Tyler Hendley. Just any tips on taking pinch harmonics to the next level? Love your playing. Oh, goodness. Um, I am the the worst person to ask about that. I don't, I don't <laughs> thank you for the question. Listen, if I'm doing rhythm guitar and I try to go for like, you know, the Adam D pinch squeal, like I'm going to miss that pinch squeal probably 65% of the time. So I'm a very bad source, <laughs> bad source to answer that question. But as much like anything else, man, you just got to really, I, I, I think, um, learning from the people who are really fucking good at it, like Adam D Zach Wild, but much like anything else, you just got to like work on it and just watch people do it a lot and see the consistencies of like, you know, where their picking hand is and, and how they hold their pick and also the type of music that they do, you know, to see if it's actually appropriate for it. Like, but yeah, I don't really do them. I use natural harmonics much more and that's all Matthias Eklund. Like that's my end all be all guitars. Uh, yes. So if you're talking about natural harmonics, bitch, I can tell you about natural harmonics, but <laughs> pinch harmonics, no. No, Mateus is the goat when it comes to uh, to the natural harmonics. I still don't understand how he gets a lot of them. <laughs> well, I high action helps tremendously, but aside from that, just gotta practice him, man. But the way he wields melodies in there, like he's the only guitarist in the lead world that I'm interested in listening to, and then that will not change. Yeah, he's phenomenal. Have you ever spoken to him like about the way that he envisions his rhythm aspects as well, or based on like the Indian? Oh, you would love that. Yeah, or, or based on that Indian thing, or whatever it's called. I can't remember what it's called right now, but yeah, I spoke. Conical. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, I spoke to him at uh, the Guitar Summit. The guy's a genius. You know, when you when you're talking to someone and you know that you don't really fully can like understand what they're saying, at you. they're <laughs> that operating was like that at moment. a different yeah. RPM. <laughs> yeah, completely. Like the guy's a genius. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess next question, we can do one. Kind of already gone over it, but Asaya, Hubert, um, those tapping licks, how do you do them? Tapping licks. So tapping is really, you know, 75% legato. And my left hand was, when it came to the lead realm, always faster than my right. So I just, well, legato is like steering and hitting the gas. You know, when if you're alternate picking, it's like you're steering and hitting the gas over here. So for me, um, just getting really good at legato and then eventually getting bored of it and just, you know, in a manner of speaking, just fitting one more finger in. <laughs> you know, <with laughs> enough patience and willpower, you can do anything. You can fit a whole fucking hand in there, apparently. So, um, which we've said. seen. If you've ever seen like fucking, oh, listen, this is typically how I break the seal on podcasts. This is like happening at the end, but this is fine. Um, <laughs> but like if you've watched like Daniel Guitardo, man, like he does like 
competent, beautifully structured eight finger tapping. Like it's just, well, four finger tapping really with the right hand, just absolutely incredible. But for me, it's really just strong legato. You know, once you have that, think about it. If you're doing a four note per string tap, one, two, three, four, one, two, three of those notes are all legato, 75%. And it's really easy to just kind of like pop the other, you know, finger in there. It just gets more difficult when you're doing string skip legato sweeping runs, you know, like fucking Rick Graham style, you know, (laughs) like that can get pretty tough, but one string at a time, man, one string at a time and be super patient with it. Okay. Final question. And I know we kind of touched on this earlier, but, uh, and I know that you said that you're more focused on writing, but I guess if they're is a way to answer this. Let's see. So name I can't pronounce. It's not even in English language. I've had this the last two. <laughs> yeah. What's uh, what's your practice regimen? There isn't really a practice regimen. My, my practice regimen is really through writing, like I said beforehand. But when it comes to it, you know, it's writing maybe a little bit out of my ability. Because I know I'm not, I'm a lazy piece of shit when it comes to practice. I have no interest in getting better or faster or cleaner. I'm fine with it. I'm happy with it. Even live, I'm like performance like accuracy wise like a b plus and i don't care because i want to put on a fucking show you know i don't want some cardboard cutout standing there just fucking that doesn't interest me i want to see like maiden and and fucking vi like shows you know that are entertaining but i digress so when it comes to getting better the only way that i know that i'm going to practice is to write stuff that i'm committed to having to practice to play live eventually because I play all my stuff live at some point anyway. So like a good song again is um, Adrenaline. That song is fucking hell. It is exactly what it sounds like. And the song Synapse as well. Synapse um, quite literally is, so for Synapse, I painted my wall white and I splattered every single color all over the place. So that song is a fucking journey and a half. Um, and committing myself to like, once I record it, all right, if I'm emotionally attached to it and I feel like it's saying what I wanted to say, get your shit together and play it live, you know, and, and I have, so just finding ways to commit yourself. You have to trick yourself into practicing if you don't want to, you know? Um, I also think it's also like, it's kind of like, you don't want your passion to become a chore either. Like, it's kind of like when the second a sun makes iron, you know, through fusion and fission, like the second the sun makes iron is when that passion fucking dies, man. And if it becomes a chore for you, and that's, that was always my apprehension about having a career in music. I never wanted to feel obligated to have to put a record out or to do anything like that at all. I wanted to do it in, in, in a very natural way without any stress, which is why I never signed to a label or, you know, had a team of people that work with me. So, um, yeah, just like finding whatever way that you feel you need to practice to be efficient. You know, of course, if you want to learn a new technique, you're going to sound robotic. You have to go up and down your scales. You have to do your sweet picks very slow, play to a metronome, record yourself, listen back and be objectively honest with yourself. If it sounds like shit, fix it. Great. I wish it was just as easy to fix it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Between record yourself, if it sounds like shit, fix it. And then there's about uh, years in between those two phrases. No, but it does just boil down. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. It does. Yeah. yeah, It's very true, isn't it? I like it. Mm -hmm. Completely honest. Good answer, by the way. It does just come down to just fixing it. So. Yeah, it does. So Angel. Thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Good to finally meet you. Absolutely. Pleasure's all mine. I appreciate you guys having me on and uh, I had a blast. So I know that he he didn't really talk too much about what goes into building his technique, but uh, his technique is pretty built up and that had to take a lot of discipline. A lot of discipline. Yeah. 
he's a killer guitar player. I think he plays it down a little bit. I think so too. I just don't think he likes referring to his background of, you know, being that his family was military. But that definitely had to have some subconscious level to his, uh, you know, to how he approached guitar. I mean, you are, you know, your childhood basically, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that kind of discipline has a very big uh, payoff when you're trying to get good at music, in my opinion, because, you know, regardless of the creative side of it, which is, you know, why we're, we're all into it in the first place, to actually get good at something like guitar, it's all about consistency. Consistency, discipline, routine. Those are the things that allow you to get good. That I mean, which then provide the platform for your creativity to basically soar from. But man, without that discipline, how are you going to do it? That's why you see these, you know, these guitar players that have only been playing for a few years. And then you've got some guitar players that have been playing plus 10 years. And it's, that's the difference, isn't it? It's the discipline focusing on the right things versus someone that maybe really enjoys it, but maybe focused on the wrong things and didn't have the same level. You mean like guitar players who've been playing for a few years, but who are way better than, yes. Yeah, because two or three super focused years will get you way further than 15 years dicking around and meandering with no real guidance or direction. Yeah, 100%. And uh, yeah, you see that all the time. I mean, (laughs) even for a degree, I even did that, you know, Um, for the first three or four years, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, So yeah, I totally get it. But some people just know exactly what they want to do. And I think Angel was one of those people. Yeah, he's he seems like he's never had an issue knowing who he was. No, which is a good place to be. <laughs> well, what's interesting to me about that is, you know how people are often asking, how do you develop your own style? How do you develop your own musical personality or whatever, your own voice? Man, I don't think that you need to work on that stuff. I don't think so either. I think it actually comes out. Yeah, you are who you are. Yeah, I think that basically when, you know, if you listen to like bands like Metallica, their influences are like, you know, Thin Lizzy, people that don't really sound anything like them. But I'm guessing that if you actually delved deeply in and had a look and compared it, you'd probably see some similarities. But I think that finding your own voice is just basically an amalgamation of everything that you are, you know, what you listen to, what you, you know, visualize and observe. And I think that the moment you try and focus on making your own voice is when you start sounding like someone else. Well, yeah, for sure. And really, all you should worry about is getting as good as possible, in my opinion. Yes. As good as possible and not trying to be creative. But, uh, you know, if writing music is what you want to do, in a disciplined fashion, make sure that you write music. Try to get as good as possible and make a discipline out of writing. And then your voice will just naturally come through it all. It will. Because you've, you've got your influences, you've got your personality. That shit is already formed. It is. And you got to think about it. It's the same 12 notes. The only difference is the expression. That's, you know. <laughs> I do think, though, that, you know, I don't want people to mistake what I'm saying with, uh, don't try to get better at this stuff. Like, even though your personality is already part of you, you still do need to put in a very concerted effort to get good at writing. I think just as much work as playing and guidance 
and collaboration goes a long, long way. Yeah. I mean, if you think about the songwriting and the skill set being, they're basically feeding each other because when you're writing, you need the skill set to be able to push that creativity and also vice versa. (laughs) You know what I mean? So I think that focusing on each of them is a skill set in itself. I forget if this body aside, she's a, like a classical guitarist. I think it was her who said it, that technique is the wings upon which my creativity soar, something like that. Oh yeah. I remember you saying this to me before. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's, and I know that I probably got the quote wrong, but uh, <laughs> that's stuck with me because that's all technique really should be. I feel like when, uh, when people use it as a means to an end, they're missing the point. I would wholeheartedly agree. I mean, you can't write music from being the most skilled guitar player in the world. But you... No. However, if you write music that requires a great amount of skill, being a good guitar player certainly helps. Or like uh, our buddy Andy James, the Five Finger Death Punch gig is confirmed. And remember we were talking to him about how he's got technique to spare for that gig. Yeah. Like he doesn't have to worry about the technical challenge and can just focus on being a rock star because he puts so much time into his playing. Yeah, exactly. Except for the fact that he can't count. (laughs) (laughs) So tell me about this new live stream, man. What's going on? Yeah, it's all about songwriting as well. So um, there's two new live streams on Riff Hard now. One is called Dissecting the Directive and the other one is Becoming King. And they go hand in hand with our end of the month of event, Riff Rescue. Have you ever heard the Satyricon song, King? No, is it good? Oh, yeah. It's really good. See, there's, there's there's a song by Tesseract Ball King that's phenomenal. I bet it sounds totally different than the Satyricon song. I can imagine that it does. <laughs> All right. So anyways, go on. So yeah, um, dissecting the directive is every single month we have a competition called King of the Riff. I will give our members a brief to write music to, and that can be anything from writing in a certain key all the way through to what last month's brief was, which was the name of your song is Dark, Write the Song. Um, so with dissecting the directive, I actually take the brief and show them the approach that I would take. And that is after a couple of days after the announcement of the brief. So say they're stuck and they're unable to actually understand what's going on, then it gives them a d- direction in which to go. Say they don't know what this scale is, then that puts them into the right place so that they can do that with their own songwriting. And our second live event that also goes with King of the Riff is Becoming King. It's where I take the runner-up from this month's King of the Riff or next month's King of the Riff, and I show them how they could have improved on their submission to potentially take them to winning first spot on King of the Riff. That's really cool. I know oftentimes with like Nail the Mix, for instance, when people don't win, you know, not everybody can win, right? No. People want to know why they didn't win. Obviously, you can't sit there and talk to every single person about it. But I think that doing something for the runner-up is really, really cool. Help them see like what they could have done differently. That might even be more valuable than winning. Exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and also, it's not at that point, it's not just restricted to the instrument. It's also going on with other things that they could have done within the recording of their track, for example. Um, we don't go into like the mixing or anything like that, but... You can go to URM for that. Exactly. Yeah, you can. But it's like the different layers that they could have added to accompany what they have already put down. Almost like having another guitar player or something like that. So like the last one, I added in some some different synths, um, some strings, and added in some extra guitar parts just to really enforce 
what they were trying to do during their chorus section. So helped them with their arrangement. Yeah. A good song with a bad arrangement sucks. Yeah, it's all in the arrangement. If you think about it, you can have five really sick riffs in a song, but if they're not arranged properly and they flow into each other well, then it's just a riff salad of good riffs, which is a shame really, isn't it? <laughs> it's definitely a shame, but you know what's not a shame? Go on. Riffhard.com. <laughs> <laughs> so go to riffhard.com and get better. Definitely get better. And it's been a pleasure, dude. Pleasure as always, mate. Can't wait to see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week.